Hey guys, just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language, but that's just because we know how to have a good time. Stick around, you'll be glad you did. You are here for me to enlighten you. Whoever act like this again, you're barred for life. It's just vile and base. It's kind of embarrassing. If you know you're lying, then you can forget them. Oh, I get it. It's very clever. <laughs> Hello, peoples, and welcome to another episode of Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. I am your host for the day, Ryan Siebold, and with me, as always, is a man who recently took ownership of Mary Poppins' magical umbrella, Mr. Jason Peters! What's up, Ryan? How goes it, my friend? How are you, buddy? Glad to have you. I am doing well. Gotta tell you, the uh, view from up here is mighty spectacular. I'm pretty sure I can see both of our houses uh, taking full advantage of this magical umbrella that I have always wanted to since I was a kid, ever since I uh, not only, you know, was charmed by Miss Julie Andrews, but of course Mr. Dick Van Dyke as well. And so uh, I either wanted a magical flying umbrella or I wanted the ability to shoot in and out of industrial chimneys. Okay. So I'm calling this a win. One of the two is fine. That's a <laughs> that is a fair trade-off. I don't know what you do in the chimneys. I think you got a lot more freedom with the umbrella. So you're recording this episode up in the sky, floating around right now? It, it is, yeah. I actually have uh, some new technology that I got from, uh, well, let's go ahead from you, sir. Because, you know, with your... Uh, professional audio equipment in the uh, filming world you know I who I thought who better to help me because you know I've been really trying to kind of get out of the house a lot more you know I think so much of us look podcasters staying inside all the time film watchers staying inside all the time you put those two bad boys together and I I am sorely lacking in melanin and uh, the doctor was like dude you can only take so many <laughs> vitamin D supplements And so I was like, okay, well, you know, what can I do to get outside? And so it was funny because I didn't really have, obviously, the umbrella. And it was actually a very, well, I won't call it a sordid affair, but there was a certain amount of breaking and entering into the home of Miss Andrews. A lot of people don't realize she was allowed to take that back home with her. And I was actually, I'll be honest, I'm hard up for money right now. I was going to sell it on eBay as memorabilia, right? Oh, here's the umbrella that Julie Andrews used in Mary Poppins. Sure. Lo and behold, I go to open it to just inspect the thing, make sure there's no tears in it or anything. Freaking fly up in the air, dude. And it's like, whoa, holy shit. And and I, I haven't figured out how it works. I know if you open it that it, it floats in the air, but I've been afraid to close it because I think that I'm just going to go shooting to the ground. Obviously, I don't want to do that. But I don't really know how to get myself down. So I just, you know, hit you up. I was like, dude, I'm I'm not going to be able to make it to, to, to ground level to my computer. Let's figure something out. You know, you were able to drone me the equipment. It's, it seems to be working fine. And yeah. uh, I can hear you loud and clear. How long have you been up there? Uh, seven days now. Yes, seven, seven days. days. Wow. I've already learned to subsist on a nourishing diet of insects. A lot of flies were going into my mouth as I flew through the sky. Protein, yeah. And, you know, but then hunger started settling in, and all of a sudden one went in, and I was like, oh, wait, you know, that 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 helps the hunger pangs. Okay. Sure, let's, right. Now, 
let's adapt. You know, we're figuring it out as we go along. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you what like some of the challenges were, but it sounds like the main challenge is just existing up there in the sky. We'll have to get a BB gun and shoot you down or something. Uh, we'll figure something out. Um, I appreciate <laughs> it. That's actually a pretty good idea. If we could just get like a, maybe a small tear or hole in there to sort of let a little bit of air sure. flow through and bring me down gently, that would yeah. be great. And I also fear that farmers will shoot their shotguns at me, and that will happen eventually. So I'd rather you do it safely. We'll get you. We'll get you back somehow. In the meantime, I'm really glad that you uh, found a way to join us today for this show. That must be uh, really difficult to do what you're doing, but we uh, we tip our hat to you, sir. Uh, in the meantime, we do have a movie to talk about. Jason, do you have a description for us? Way up there in the I- sky. I do. Thankfully, I had my cell phone on me, and it does get reception. I've been really monitoring the usage and only using it as necessary. So okay. feel honored that I decided to use three entire percent of my phone battery to look up this description. We appreciate your efforts. We are watching The Elephant Man. That's correct. David Lynch's classic film. I am really, really excited to take a look at this one closely. Have a description from Google here. Dr. Frederick Treves, played by Anthony Hopkins, discovers Joseph, who is actually his real name, but we'll call him John, discovers John Merrick in a sideshow. Born with a congenital disorder, Merrick uses his disfigurement to earn a living as the Elephant Man. Treves brings Merrick into his home, discovering that his rough exterior hides a refined soul and that Merrick can teach the stodgy British upper class of the time a lesson about dignity. So there you go. A nice sort of gentle description of a gentle character. And what I would say is not always a gentle film, but has a lot of tenderness to it. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to describing that. Full uh, full disclosure, may get a little emotional during some of those scenes. Uh, talking about them. Uh, some of those hit home for whatever reason really hard, uh, as yeah, a lot of this film did. But... We'll get into that first, Ryan. I would love to know, what did you think about this movie? Jason, I'm going to tell you about the warmest hug that David Lynch has ever given us uh, (laughs) right after we take a listen to the trailer. Life is full of surprises. Ladies and gentlemen, the terrible elephant man. At first, you will want to turn away from him. Then, you may find him a silent, unresisting target for your ridicule. Stand up. Stand up! Turn around! Mister, why is your head so big, mister? (laughs) But if you come to know him... Have you always been the way you are now? You will begin to see beyond the perversion of his form. Are you in any pain? Are your parents still alive? Your father, your mother? And discover the beauty in the beast. He is English, he is 21, his name is John Merrick. At no time have I met with such a perverted or degraded version of a human being as this man. Am I to assume then that he is ultimately incurable? Yes, sir. This hospital doesn't accept incurables. The freak hunting, this is monstrous. If you ask my opinion, He's only being stared at all over again. People pay money to see your monster, Mr. Treves. I'll collect it. Yada, monster, yada! Freak! What was it all for? Why did I do it? 
And perhaps for the first time, you will understand the true meaning of courage and human dignity. I am not an animal. I am a human being. You're not an elephant man at all. You're Romeo. So, Ryan, uh, with us being back here, what did you think about this movie? This movie is absolutely fantastic. It's uh, nothing at all what I expected from the director of Eraserhead and Mulholland Drive. (laughs) This was my first time having seen this film all the way through, which I'm kind of, that's a cinematic confession, I suppose. But yeah, I just, I mean, we were all, we're all familiar with the, I'm not an animal scene and and some of the other, uh, you know, classic clips from this film. Uh, that I'm sure we're going to discuss, but I never watched this movie soup to nuts uh, like this, which is why I love this podcast. This was long overdue. I don't know why it took me so long. We're going to get into all the reasons why I love this movie, but I absolutely uh, will gush about this film. It's everything I wanted it to be tremendously moving, very well shot. Um, I don't know if this had, uh, I know you've spoken ad nauseum in the past on the show about criterion collection cleanups, how somehow they're able to magically through sorcery and wizardry restore these classic films. Uh, I don't know if this had that treatment or if it's just always been that sharp. Um, But this film was just beautiful to watch for a black and white movie from this era. Absolutely. Yeah. uh, The the performances were stellar, the makeup, the music, all the things for this to be Lynch's sophomore effort uh, is extremely impressive and we're going to get into all those things but yeah uh high level loved it excellent i feel pretty much exactly the same way so i don't need to regurgitate any of that we can go ahead and go into it right here i just all need right. a good place for us to start as always jason at the beginning <laughs> yes indeed in the beginning of this film i'm gonna i'm actually gonna have a quick question here for you and in, in just a moment the beginning of this film was certainly not what I anticipated. Now, for me, this was my second viewing of this film. I had only recently seen the film for the first time about a year ago. And so I was able to get my hands on that Criterion collection, dive into some of the supplemental features. Famously, Lynch never speaks about his movies. He was still young enough that I think we got some information out of him that we may not have later. But the interesting thing is even for the DVD... Much of the supplemental information is just transcripts of audio, either of Lynch at a AFI event. There are recordings of a book that he was interviewed in that goes into a lot of the making of and a lot of the different aspects of The Elephant Man. It's like a 70-minute reading or something like that. So a lot of audio information out there, even if there's not necessarily video information, which, again, totally trends with Lynch. There is a uh, 30-some-odd-minute little making-of documentary on YouTube that I was able to find. Uh, And then another 30-minute interview with David Lynch talking uh, both specifically about The Elephant Man. And um, they were informative. Um, it is always interesting to, I'm, I think you have the same, same reaction, but it's always interesting to hear David Lynch talk, uh, as a person just with who we have, like with what we have, uh, you know, from his library to derive his personality from, it's just so, he's so meek and modest and well acted and everything. He's just, yeah. He seems like the nicest man of all time. He just wants his burger at Bob's big boy and his little French fries and, uh, (laughs) make his little movies. Absolutely, man. Guy has a 
incredible sense of fashion. You know, hair's always oh, combed. So dapper. So dapper. Always wearing suits. And yeah. yeah, he's just got a very sort of Midwestern charm and gentleness. And he's very fair with people. And he's yep. not a negative person at all. Surprisingly into Eastern philosophy and transcendental meditation. Less so when you see his movies, but more so when... Again, as you're saying, you know, it's this guy. And look, I mean, this could he could very easily be like a Jodorowsky where LSD inspires 99 percent of what he puts on screen. But I think he gets it naturally. You know, I don't even think he's, you know, out there like doing a bunch of drugs or drinking or smoking or whatever. I think he's just I could be mistaken, but I think he falls more into Cronenberg's camp where he's just absolutely a really nice straight edge dude that just happens to have some very odd ideas and uh, and an odd way to look at cinema. Yeah, but it's honorable. I wouldn't say that I necessarily always like his films. There are some that I love. There are some that I hate. Sure. Honestly, I would say probably I do tend to either love or hate them. I don't really find myself a lot of in between. And I'm always interested in the way in the way that he puts together a film, even when, you know, because I don't really like Lost Highway like a lot of people do. I don't like Blue Velvet, certainly the way that most people do. But even then in Blue Velvet, there's some very interesting sequences, the opening shot where we go underneath the house and see the ants and it's reflective of all the like ugliness behind modern day suburbia. These things can seem tropey now, but these were not necessarily aspects of life and storytelling that were explored at the time. And so he's always going to bring something interesting, whether it works or not. Yep, absolutely. But this was definitely his most um, straight ahead film that I've seen of his. Sure, Uh, absolutely. You know, uh, definitely not as abstract. Um, Tons of heart, tons of emotion. Um, and just a linear narrative start to finish with, uh, but it did have a lot of Lynchian layers. Um, we're going to talk about that, including this intro, um, that absolutely just opens up weird as fuck. And so it lets, you know, kind of, he kind of puts his stamp on the beginning. Um, and then it kind of unwinds a little bit and lets you breathe for a little while. Um, and then there's some little moments along the way, again, that we're going to touch on as we go through the film. But, uh, yeah, it, he put his stamp on it without, uh, and you know, he'd only made a racer head, so he didn't really... Uh, he hasn't at this juncture in 1980, he hasn't really established his voice in cinema. Like now it's easy to look back and say, oh, yeah, it's, you know, his most normal film or whatever cliche thing you want to say. But, um, you know, at the time he was just making movies and, and kind of spreading his wings and uh, making a name for himself. And and um, this did exactly that kind of put him on the map. Absolutely. Now, when we open on this film, We see a still photo of a woman's eyes and we tilt down to a pursed mouth. The photo soon fades to a picture of a second woman before doing so for a third. And at this point, the camera zooms into the woman's forehead as a very loud droning sound makes itself known. And we see these images of elephants. They prevent themselves as the woman from the third picture. She's thrashing back and forth. We've got these elephant cries. We've got a giant puff of smoke that leads to a baby cry. And then all of a sudden, a smash cut to the roar of a fire at a carnival before our protagonist reveals himself. So, Ryan, I would have to imagine that for a film that follows this plot line and that could have very easily been a sort of schmaltzy biopic if it was in the hands of someone else was 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 this a, a very I would have to imagine you, you didn't expect this opening and it might have caught you off guard I didn't know what to expect because again it's David Lynch so on one hand you're kind of expecting an opening like this uh but I had heard about the film and knew its reputation and um 
I, I, I was kind of, I didn't know, honestly, I didn't know what I was walking into. I, this was kind of one okay. of the, even though I was familiar with some of the scenes, the I'm not an animal stuff. And then of course the tremendous makeup, we've all seen, uh, you know, uh, John Hurt as, um, the elephant man, you know, all done up and everything. I didn't really know narratively which way this was going to go. Was it going to be a dark tragedy? Was it going to be a moving heartfelt tale? You know, was it going to be more of just like a classic, thriller of sorts or, or so I didn't know, honestly. Um, yeah. so I was delighted to find out that it was a little bit of all the above and it was Absolutely. just like a perfect balance of all these things. So yeah. it never got so weird that you were kind of like being pulled out of it or like, what the fuck is this? Um, it was never so emotional that it was like sappy, like what you're saying, kind of schmaltzy or Hallmark channel esque. So, you know, it, it just kind of, touched on, but it did have kind of like some eerie moments too. It's some yes. frightening moments. And, uh, you know, so it kind of took you down that. And then, you know, the fact that this is all shot in black and white, um, added to that, you know, classic universal monster movie kind of vibe, um, you know, especially down the dark alleyways and, and the, the first act when he's, uh, Anthony Hopkins character of Frederick Treves is going to visit the elephant man in his, uh, home is a, uh, and, and the carnival and all of that, like it, it had some really kind of eerie moments. Yeah. And, and one of the things I think the intro does is it sort of lets you know that you're in the hands of someone who's going to do what he thinks is best for tell to tell sure. the story. Right. Right. And there's a number of those aspects that we'll call out here in just a moment. But I do think that it's sort of good to establish like because, again, you know, this could have been. This could have been a by-the-numbers Hollywood biopic played by a Robin Williams or whoever at the time, and it could have had the classic, you know, John Williams score. Not maybe not John Williams. I don't mean to talk shit about John Williams, right? But um, uh, ugh, easy, easy. I know, I know, right? <laughs> but either way, my point is that he's Lynch goes out of his way to sort of unsettle you a little bit, like you said, in certain ways and sort of establish a different playing field so that it kind of is an etch a sketch to your expectations. You know, it's right. like, okay, you know, if I tell you, I'm going to make this inspirational story about a disfigured man who's overcoming challenges, like you're not going to start off with this trippy, you know, transcendental meditation inspired scene going into his head. And you're certainly not going to, you know, highlight like hissing gas and, you know, some of the industrial mechanics and machines that he does. And so I love the fact that it sort of establishes a different vibe for this kind of film. And yes. that's even further enforced by the way that it sort of starts off. We get this sharp introduction to our protagonist, Frederick Treves, who's played by Anthony Hopkins in a very brilliant performance. And we've got all of this circus music playing around and he's strolling through the freak show and I love one of the things that Lynch does like right off the way to establish character that I think is really interesting is where he has Treves go through not one, but two different doorways marked no entry. And he just doesn't <laughs> give a shit. He just blows right through. And we quickly see that the cops are shutting down this freak show exhibit featuring what they're calling the elephant man. And it's, they're shutting it down for being too horrific. Basically we see a lot of, you know, people and women crying and running away and the cops are basically saying as much. And from there, we also get a very quick cut to Treves performing surgery as a small child runs in and says, I found it. I found it. And of course, you know, we can kind of figure that he's referring to our titular character of the elephant man. And 
Hopkins face tells us that like nothing in the world to him is more important in that moment than finding this person. And so Ryan, one of the things that I'll tee you up on here is that there's a lot of really fabulous intentional design within this film. It's a very stylized film, right? It's got a lot of impressionist qualities and we'll get into all of that. But one of the first that I want to discuss with you, especially as a sound guy is sound. And I think that the sound design specifically in this film was very advanced for its day. I think that it was a really interesting take in terms of what they chose to highlight and what not. Sure. And I also just like that Lynch appreciates sound as an element of film. You know, for so yes. many people, it's kind of just an afterthought or, you know, we're just sort of filling in. But Lynch really understands the gravity and importance that sound design score, all this stuff has on a person's viewing experience. And really, it really fully owns that, I think, with this film. So what did you think about the sound design specifically for this one? Sure. No, it was fantastic. And uh, they had a lot to work with because of the set and setting in the Victorian era in the late 1800s. Um, mm-hmm. And so in London, and uh, so there's just so much texture and the machines and the industrial stuff. Uh, he cuts back to actual authentic. It's my understanding that there was actual authentic footage from classic London, um, from the industrial revolution and stuff like that, uh, smokestacks and, you know, workers and stuff like that milling about. Uh, so there was a lot of, uh, you know, he made it feel uh, very gritty and um, and worn and lived in um, both through sound and uh, cinematography. So uh, I think that, uh, you know, the DP, uh, Freddie Francis, did an amazing job of shooting this film, um, but the audio and the sound quality substantiated those shots um, to make it feel really rough and wet and gross and hard and lived in. Um, and then in the moments uh, in the hospital and stuff, I would go the inverse of that too and say that just as much as sound quality, and I think you kind of touched on this a moment ago, but just as much as the what they're letting you hear is important and amazing and, and really draws you in, um, also the moments of silence that they allow. Yeah. Um, so that when the elephant man... Uh, you know, comes into the picture um, in a few scenes from now and um, and you start to have these really emotional beats, not to have a big swelling score uh, while he's delivering some of these powerful lines or crying or anything that I think a lesser movie would rely on as a crutch to derive some emotion. I think the uh, the sound is just as important when they let you sit in the silence and just take it all in. And you're just in this room with these couple of people in an emotional moment and you're, they're not letting you go anywhere. Like you really have to like, you know, react emotionally or respond emotionally. So, uh, and then when you get back to the sounds kicking in and all the music and stuff. So I think it's that balance. That was a really dynamic, uh, audio, audio track all the way through just, um, you know, between the balance of, of what you heard and didn't. Absolutely. That's a great point. You know, what he omits is just as important as what he puts in there. And I think that he knows when to play those things against the visuals that we're seeing on screen. And so there's a couple of decisions that really stand out. One of, I think, the more haunting sounds that we hear throughout the course of the film is just the hissing of those gas furnaces and lights that are always being turned on and off. Sure. 
And then when he needs to create an unsettling atmosphere, not only does he tend to hide some of the people in the shadows and play with shadow and darkness, but he'll also find these sort of repetitive droning sound effects, right? Like we've talked about some of the machinery and the industrial sounds, but also, you know, it could be a leak of water that's just rushing out, you know, and instead of having it be more mixed to the background where it's only subtly perceived, it's mixed very loudly, you know, and I think, again, that has a very strong effect on the viewer and the audience in terms of leaving us unsettled because it's all setting up a contrast, you know, the, the opening, I think first act is really designed to unsettle you and make you feel a little ugly. And the film itself is a little ugly so that the beauty that is going to unfold over the course of the second and third act really hits home. And I think that again, and one of the other thing about interesting sound design as well is this is one of the aspects of filmmaking that we can take for granted today, because it was not that long ago that, sound design really was not considered to the degree that it is. You know, you didn't have people, I mean, obviously it's limited by the technology, but you know, the way that, the way that people approach sound design here and now, and it's like, Hey, you know, this is reflective of the atmosphere. We can, you know, use certain sounds and bring them up down. Like that wasn't always done. You know, you don't really see that in fifties cinema and sixties cinema, where it was just about, you know, the visuals and the acting and, and, you know, maybe score. Sure. But with regards to just overall sound design of the effects and everything that goes along with that and the way that it is designed to contribute to the cinematic experience, that was not paid attention to with nearly the same love and care that it would be in the later aspect of cinema or in the later later times. It's worth mentioning too, that uh, David Lynch actually is credited as a, as the sound designer for this film. So to your point, these are all very intentional decisions by, you know, a creative mind that, you know, coming off of a racer head, it's my understanding, just a quick little piece of background. And I think you would agree um, that, you know, he was coming off of a, and a very independent experience where I think he was wearing a lot of hats um, and trying to just, you know, because when you're making your first film, you end up, there's a lot of overlap. You're just trying to get it done. And he had a lot more control. And so when he went into this yeah. being, uh, uh, you know, his first a little bit larger budget, actual real deal production, um, you know, I think that he was taking some of those elements with him and he probably still carries them with him to this day because he's more of an auteur. So it would make sense that he would have his, creative stamp, you know, uh, on every department in some fashion or another. The other sound uh, designer um, in this film is credited as Alan Splett, who uh, was with him through Dune and Blue Velvet and a bunch of other of his uh, movies. So, um, mm. yeah, apparently the two of them worked well together and uh, and this was their first project. So pretty cool. Very cool. I love that. Now, from here, we've got Treves and he's left the hospital. He finds the freak show owner who is played by Freddie Jones. Uh, Apparently his name is Mr. Bites in the film. I don't think we ever really see his name. We just kind of know him as the evil ringmaster. But (laughs) he's great in the film as well. We'll get to him in a sec. And during the intro, the owner, again, Mr. Bites, sure, let's go with it, explains that the freak's mother was attacked by an elephant during the fourth month of conception. And it's at that point that we realize, oh, that's what, 
Lynch is representing with that opening scene. By the way, uh, I will just say out there real quick, I know that like, you know, freak show and the term freak with regards to some of these people is not necessarily the most politically correct thing to say these days. Uh, you know, if and when we use that term, please just know it's because the film, you know, refers to it and and we're in that parlance. So, uh, again, just, you know, no, no intense meant by the term freak, of course, uh, but it <laughs> is relative good. to this film. So yep. now what we see is the elephant man who is presented in silhouette at first. And this was a very interesting aspect of the film because it's sort of a slow reveal with John Merrick in terms of his full makeup. And that was actually a decision. I don't know if you saw this, Ryan, that David Lynch did not make himself. He actually wanted to come out swinging and show him in this very opening shot, reveal him to the audience. Right. And it I was see that. Mel Brooks's suggestion, I believe if I have it correctly and said, Hey, why don't you slow play this a little bit though? It may also have been John Hertz. I can't say I recall which of the two it was, but it was a little of both. And it was um, my experience that some of that was due to the makeup not being done in time um, because uh, Lynch, as you know, um, tried to do the, again, the, I, along with the sound design and everything else, like what I was just saying, uh, one of the other tasks he tried to put under uh, his purview is the makeup. And yeah. he went and uh, gave it a go and it was not good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it so, was not. Uh, yeah. and we actually have a, a, a we'll, we have a sort of a part sectioned off later in the, in the review here that we'll talk about that stuff. Specifically sure. Sure. And kind of how all of that played one uh, with one another. But yeah, but that was, was my that, talking about this scene in particular. Um, the makeup was not done uh, as they passed it off to a Mr. Chris Tucker. And so he was working uh, fervently off of the skeleton and stuff. Again, we could talk about this in a bit, but uh, uh, because the makeup was not completed um, and they knew that, uh, the movie was going to live and die on whether or not that makeup worked. It was also sure. uh, a, a deciding factor, on, partly a deciding factor on why they shot in black and white um, because they could. Yeah, hide, I think know, that was it, a really strong decision. Right, right. It just it looked different in color. Um, this kind of set made it more of a timeless piece. Absolutely. I was actually thinking about that as I was watching it, where it's like if this film was made in color, this yeah. makeup would probably not have aged well enough. And it probably to sure. the point that it would have been distracting. And so them going with the black and white was one of the best decisions they could have made for future generations to enjoy the film. Yeah. It just wouldn't have had the same vibes, you know, it just wouldn't have had that classic cinema feel. It just would have, it would have placed it in, like you said, in a, in a time and uh, it wouldn't felt like, uh, you know, a timeless period piece. But um, yeah, Yeah. the the decision was made um, by Mel Brooks suggestion. So you're right about that. It's my understanding that uh, they decided to obscure uh, Merrick's face and, and, uh, some of it and, and kind of tell the tale bit by bit, um, which uh, did two things. It gave, uh, Chris Tucker more time to work on the makeup and uh, as well as, you know, kind of dribbled out the reveal and, and built up some suspense over it because, you know, again, um, like I said, in the beginning of the show, you know, we get to watch a movie like this with, you know, 30, 40 years of, his film history that, you know, we're, I went into this knowing what John Merrick looked like because I've seen clips and trailers and stuff like oh, okay. that over the years. But think of like an original audience. Like when you sit down in a cinema in 1980 and you've not seen anything, he's not on the poster in full makeup and regalia. Sure. So that must have been, you know, in yeah, it was a shock. 
Yeah, right. Like how many people knew who John Merrick was back then? You know, like I don't think people were really familiar with the Elephant Man. So um, this was a uh, must have been a tremendous reveal in original cinemas as you watch. And it's, you know, it must have taken people back a little bit. Absolutely. And the one other thing I think that the decision to hold back does is it sets up this really beautiful shot and this really beautiful moment with Anthony Hopkins where instead of us seeing John Merrick, we see Anthony Hopkins's response. Sure. And it's just this sort of shocked expression and the camera pushes in and he totally crushes the single tear dropping. It yes. was so perfect and it was so beautiful. And I think that, again, like let's take that beat. Let's – Again, the audience is going to be fine if we take a couple scenes to fully reveal this. Let's give everybody else chance to react and let those reactions do a lot of work for us and capture the audience's imagination right by the time we get there, you know, or before we get there. Right. No, this was the the definition of you know, sometimes what you don't see is scarier than what they can show you. Your imagination yeah. will always be greater than the power of cinema. So, uh yeah, I, I absolutely, and it let me know right away that I was in for a very special performance from Anthony Hopkins, um, who went on to just crush for these two hours. Um, totally, it was yeah, because uh, that was like the first time you know you'd seen a little bit of Anthony Hopkins, like you said up till now, but that was the moment where he really like settle in. I'm going to give you something special, and boy, did he ever! Absolutely, yeah. I also really appreciate that Freddie Jones, Mister Bites again, Evil Ringmaster. I'm going to call him. He would only accept the role if they gave the character additional shades. So apparently the way that it was written in the – even in the shooting script, this character was really just a one-note evil abuser. Like that's it, you know? And they really wanted Freddie Jones to play him. They were familiar with his work. And he didn't outright say no, but he said, look, gentlemen, like, you know, I appreciate what you're doing here, but – I can't play a character that's this one note and that has no element of sympathy for the audience whatsoever. And furthermore, I think it's a disservice to the character. So, you know, if we can go back and rewrite him to sort of have a little bit of love for him while still ultimately being evil and narcissistic and we give him shades, then sure. I'll go ahead and take the role. And so I think it was a really strong decision for them. I think that, like, we don't really... It's not like we think that he's a good guy. He's still a totally evil dude. But again, like we do get that sense that, okay, there is a part of him that cares and maybe in a different life, you know, he could have had a better relationship or something, but still manages to be the probably the second closest thing we have to an antagonist outside of the security guard that we'll get to soon. Sure. Now, John Merrick arrives to the hospital the next day wearing the infamous cover, that plastic or not plastic, but the fabric bag, rather, with the one hole in it so that he can see out of it through this one eye, but it hides the rest of his face. Again, this is where that sound design really comes into play when we're introduced to him, and he's basically just wheezes horribly, and he doesn't speak, and we don't see his face behind this mask. We haven't seen the film yet, so we're not familiar with what he looks like. And so to build up all of this suspense and mystery and dread and everything and then to give him this physical characteristic of having advanced bronchitis that's going to result in this wheezing, it's going to set it's going to set that that discomfort in the audience that again is going to set up even more beauty later when he actually is revealed to be very 
intelligent and very well spoken and all of that, you know? Right. From there, we learn that he is actually an Englishman named John Merrick, and he's played by John Hurt, which, again, I don't know if you always have this problem. Anytime I see John Hurt's name, always think William Hurt, like 11 (laughs) times out of 10. And especially because he was just like in so much makeup this time. Right. I I just like through – it wasn't until the end of the film that I had considered it wasn't William Hurt because I was like – Wow, like he doesn't William Hurt's doing a really good accent. Doesn't sound like him at all. Because William Hurt always sounds exactly like William Hurt. I don't know he that does. he can do a voice. And I was like, it's like the one time he's ever done a voice. And then I was like, Yeah. Wait a minute. John is not William. Cheeky monkey got me again, you did. Yeah. So no, he this is, is the, alien, John Hurt. Exactly. That's 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 probably his highest profile role. If you don't know who he is and you've seen Alien, he is the captain who is the first to get the alien bursting through the chest in the infamous chest bursting scene. But no, I, I have the same experience. It's a real Paxton Pullman scenario. But uh... <laughs> absolutely, one hundred percent. Now, again, as we as we indicated at the top description, in real life, just a little little factoid, if you will. His real name was Joseph. His name is his real name was not John Merrick. It was Joseph Merrick, and it was just an error in the script. And if you're aghast at this, let's also remember this was well before the internet, people. You couldn't just Wikipedia these things and find it out in a bunch of time. May not have even had a book in the library or something, you know, so gotta give him a little bit of a gotta give him a little bit of a pass on that one here. Now on the next day, Treves presents John to a coalition of doctors. This is sort of where we're first really introduced to the extent of his disfigurement. And I think this is such a brilliant scene. And to your point from earlier regarding the sound design, for Lynch to not have any music or sounds other than just Treves' narration and maybe some of the creaking or moving of the wheels that are covering John's figure because we see – John entirely in silhouette behind this curtain and it's pretty close to the right side of the frame. And then in the left side of the frame, we see that in the background, the entire coalition of doctors is watching from the stands, right? And then at the very, very left, we see trees on the ground level. And the entire time you're just watching this silhouette, this shadow of John as trees is narrating all of the physical disfigurements regarding his spine and what does and doesn't work on his body and this and that. And so again, it's such a, it's such a powerful scene where it just sticks out. It's not an emotional scene, but it's almost like kind of dread inducing a little bit the way that they present it. And just, again, let your imagination run wild with this giant silhouette and these, these horrible narrations of disfigurements. Yeah. And, and this is the first time we see, uh, Dr. Treves, you know, doing it's very parallel to a bit of a carnival barker, right? He was kind of doing a very medical or surgical step right up performance, you know, for sure. the doctors no, on display. So, um, you know, we see that this is kind of teeing up his character's journey, right? Because this is where yeah. he starts, and then we get to see how he's changed over the course of time. And I'm going to speak a little bit about that uh, down the road. We don't have to go on a big diatribe just yet. Um, I know we keep uh, putting off what we want to say until later, but it'll have a better <laughs> spot there. Listen in. As, stay tuned, folks. It's going to get good. I promise. Yep. yep. This, is, uh, <laughs> this is what the uh, nightly news calls a teaser. <laughs> stay tuned. We're going to let you know which soda is going to kill after you the right break. after this commercial. <laughs> 
Now, one of the things I would love to talk about right now is just the whole aspect of a producer who anybody listening is probably going to be very shocked to know is Mel Brooks. That's right. The Mel Brooks, the guy who did Robin Hood Men in Tights and Dracula Dead and Loving It and Blazing Saddles and the producers, the Mel Brooks Spaceballs produced this film. And I was shocked to learn that. I was even more shocked to learn the exact degree that he was involved and how much he had to do with the making of this film, both getting greenlit as well as, as fostering it to the film that it would ultimately become. And honestly, like defending Lynch and giving him that opportunity. We'll talk about how Anthony Hopkins was not exactly kind to him. And again, before Mel Brooks's involvement, nobody wanted to watch this film. Lynch and this producer Kornfeld, who was also out of A and AFI, which if you for anybody listening who's not familiar, David Lynch is from the AFI program, the American Film Institute. Many, many storied people have come out of there. I think the most recent graduate that's making a lot of noise would be Ari Aster, but a lot of instrumental people have come from the AFI organization. There's another famous study over there, one Miss Anne Bancroft. And it turns out, I also had no idea, maybe you did, Ryan, that Anne Bancroft was married to Mel Brooks. I did know that. I did not know Mel Brooks produced this film until I watched it. Yeah. (laughs) So Anne Bancroft, like I said, went to AFI and this guy Kornfeld went to AFI. And their connection between the two of them is that he actually ended up producing her big like 30-minute student thesis film that she had to do as an actress or something like that. And so – between Bancroft, Kornfeld, and Lynch, they all kind of graduated around the same time as well as working their way through the program at the same time. And it was much later that Kornfeld, after he was striking out on securing any funding, reached out to Miss Bancroft and she actually loved the script. And so she gave it to her husband and it turned out that Mel was in the middle of trying to do this whole, uh, you know, start his new production company. Did you happen to read about Mel Brooks and what he was doing with all that stuff at the time? Uh, just that he started Brooks, Brooks films um, to make more serious studio-like pictures that weren't comedies that he could make outside of his reputation. But I don't know much more about yeah. it. Well, no, and just to the standpoint of basically, so you're absolutely right, but one of the things is that he actually wanted to really bring in a lot of really talented people because he was entirely afraid that his name on serious pictures would work against the film, which also makes me wonder why he then called his production company Brooks Films. But hey, look, we've always got to give ourselves some credit, right? If not us, who will? Right, And (laughs) Mel Brooks was known for being a really smart, really charismatic, surprisingly emotionally in touch man. And so even though all the films, like he he became obviously very famous for being this sort of jokey, sometimes crass comedian, you know, traditional vaudeville sort of upbringing and such. And everyone was always sort of very surprised to find that he was this really genuine dude who was really interested in drama to the same degree as comedy. But he just, you know, found an inroads in comedy and that became where he made his mark. So it was really interesting because everybody when, – when Brooks came in, like everybody that was involved with the project, he greenlit all of them. He's like, cool, you guys have done a work. You all seem like you're really talented people. Uh, Let's go ahead and, yeah, bring you on. 
And someone was like, well, you know, this Lynch kid hasn't really done much. You know, you might want to at least like check out his first movie before just bringing him on. And so Mel Brooks is like, you know what? You're right. I think I will check out his first movie. What's it called? They're like, oh, it's called Eraserhead. Interesting. Well, I work for Fox Studios. I'm going to have them arrange a private screening of Eraserhead for me. And then I'm going to let the kid know if he's got the job or not. So David Lynch finds out about this and he's like, well, nice knowing you guys. I uh, enjoy making Elephant Man without me. Hopefully they find you a great director. Because <laughs> he's just like, there's no way they're going to watch my weird ass film and, and give me a major studio biopic. Like, never going to happen. And it turns out that Mel Brooks is really just that, like, he really appreciates original filmmakers. And so, as the story goes, they they sent Lynch down to where he was waiting outside of the theater where Mel Brooks was inside watching his film. And he's nervously standing around, you know, dressed like Jimmy Stewart in a full suit and tie and everything. And, you know, after the requisite amount of time, uh, doors fly open. Mel Brooks comes out with a giant smile on his face and he exclaims, you're a madman. I love it. You've got the picture and gives him a big old hug. And you can totally sure... picture Mel Brooks saying that, too. <laughs> right. Yeah. And apparently his whole thing is that he was very humbled by the fact that. He had some people earlier in his career. I, I don't know specifically who they were, but he mentions that he had some people that gave him breaks in sure. his career. And so as he got older, he wanted to do the same for some other people. So the fact that Lynch was younger didn't work against him, as a matter of fact, probably helped because he was really looking to specifically help some of the younger people get a foothold in the industry. Sure. Well, he didn't let him down. He killed it. He absolutely did not. Now, we're going to go ahead and jump into this makeup here in just a second. As far as the film is concerned, we've got Merrick being sent back to his owner, this Mr. Bites, who ends up beating him to the point that there's a young kid that sort of lives and travels with uh, the you know evil ringleader and the rest of them. And he actually goes and he has to retrieve Treves. Retrieve Treves. That's a difficult one to say. To carry him <laughs> back and you know care for and heal John back to being okay. And, you know, he kind of, when he shows up, he kind of makes a veiled threat about the fact, you know, like, oh, what happened? You know, oh, he fell down some stairs. Oh yeah, you know, clearly looks like he fell down some stairs. Yeah. It's like, oh, I got to take him. He's like, you're not going to take him. He's like, well, you know, sure would be, uh, sure would hate to have to look into that and see if he actually fell down some stairs or maybe it was something else. And he's like, all right, go ahead and take him. You know, so he's able to, <laughs> he's able to bring him back into the ward. And, you know, we see, that he's trying to hide him from the sort of headmaster of the hospital and how he has them in an isolation ward. But you can only hide someone like that for so long in a very small sort of hospital like that. He's very soon confronted. And we learn that the hospital has a rule not to care for uncurable patients. And that's right. ultimately why Treves has to hide him because he knows that he has no chance of ever being healed from his condition. So despite this, you know, we do start to see that this is a compassionate group of people because they're already starting to look the other way with this rule. We've got the nurse who's already, you know, caring for him from day one. She makes sure to, you know, defend herself later when Treves is questioning that. And we sort of finally get the reveal of John by way of one of the nurses where she's sent up to go give him some oatmeal or something to eat. And we very quickly hear her just with the hugest scream. And then we push in and see John in the bed and the makeup is revealed. And this is where we finally get him introduced as a character. So sure. again, you know, the makeup, 
with regard. This is where we get the final reveal. It's 42 years ago. Maybe it doesn't look state of the art at this point, but I do think that it that it holds up really well. And it was done by a gentleman by the name of Chris Tucker. And Ryan, I imagine that you have some information on him and this whole uh, the way that they approach the makeup. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, as I started to say earlier, David Lynch wanted to take a stab at it himself. Uh, it's my understanding that with the materials that he was used to working in, uh, this he realized very quickly he was in way over his head. He was making it all as, you know, one large piece. So uh, they were, you know, getting down to the wire uh, as far as when they were going to start shooting. And they still hadn't figured this makeup thing out yet. So they brought in Chris Tucker, um, who had, was, was, you know, well on his way to being... Uh, uh, widely respected in his craft. Um, Friday's Chris at- Tucker, as seen in Jackie Brown, that Chris Tucker? <laughs> Not that Chris Tucker, my friend. Uh, this okay. is very much a refined English gentleman, Chris Tucker. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I talk like that, but that's uh, that's not what he sounds <laughs> like at all. <laughs> Chris Tucker. Chris Tucker. Kind of sounds yeah. a little Australian. Yeah, a little Tucker. bit, a little bit. A little bit of a uh, William Hudsucker. That know, guy's a real Tucker. <laughs> but no so uh tucker was like well you guys are kind of sandbagging me because it's going to take a while to figure this out um this is you know you're talking about a pretty intense makeup job and you're just kind of dumping this on me a few weeks before shooting and so he's gonna he said i'm gonna need at least five weeks to prep and they're like five weeks okay we'll buy you some time hence uh, mel brooks getting involved and coming up with the idea or helping coming up with the idea of well we'll just release it in obscurity as we move through the film. It'll work out better that way anyways. So Mm. that bought Chris Tucker the time to come up with the 22 pieces of uh, makeup that it uh, took to uh, have him look like this. All the hair is inserted by hand because they couldn't use a wig uh, like they Mm. normally would with something like this because his hair was like in blotches and patches all over his head. Um, He was given access to the original skeleton and burial mask of Mr. John. Mayer. Yeah, I saw that. That was awesome. So the uh, producer, Jonathan Sanger, um, said that he was a little too young and naive to know that or to think for one second that he couldn't ask for this because he was, you know, pretty young at the time and on the come up. So um, he just went to the the place where the skeleton was being held and all the burial masks and a bunch of stuff for reference. He's like, can we uh, can we borrow that? Because we're kind of up against the wire on this John Merrick thing we're doing. And they were just, they didn't really know what to say, the the place that was holding it, the museum. So they're like, uh, sure, I guess. Like, <laughs> don't break it. So wow, uh, they took crazy. it out of its case. And I guess it hadn't been opened in a long time. And, the, and I guess the bones and shit just reeked to high heaven. Sure. So they brought it to uh, Chris Tucker's studio. And they're like, here you go. Man, and he's what like, am I supposed to do with these old ass bones, man? Right. So he said they had to clean all the bones <laughs> off. And then from there, they started building references and so forth. But um yeah, the makeup was insane. It took uh, six hours to put on the makeup every day uh, and another two hours to remove at the end of every day. And yeah, uh, apparently insane. they were shooting 12 to 14 hour days. So, um, you know, all in, these guys are, you know, working around the clock pretty much to get this done. So uh, absolutely insane. Um, I guess John Hurt said he took the time, the six hours in the makeup chair to become John Merrick every day. So, sure. um you know, he said that it was like uh, a possession almost as each layer would go on because his head was so heavy, you know, just like John Merrick's, uh, it yeah. added a ton of weight. So it helped with his walk and his gait and all of that. So yeah, pretty incredible process. At the time, there was no best makeup category uh, in the, at the Academy Awards. 
So uh, it, this film is rumored to have uh, been credited for making that so because everyone was so oh, awesome. pissed off that uh, that old boy didn't get a, an Oscar nom. And they're like, well, that's pretty fucked. And so after this, they uh, started the best makeup category at the Oscars because of this movie. Yeah, and just to kind of touch on David Lynch's involvement. Like he did not respond to that well. So you know he's this sort of again this right. sort of shy Midwestern guy. Yeah, yeah, and apparently he sort of basically had like four straight sleepless days and nights. Yep. He finally had to call up Mel Brooks and say, "Look, or, or no, what it was Mel Brooks called and he said, "Hey kid, I'm gonna be in town. I'll be there in five days to come look at the makeup." And David Lynch was assured that he was going to be fired from the entire thing. He was like, I'm done. I told him I was going to do the makeup. He's going to be so disappointed. I'm going to be off this project. Got super, super depressed about it. And then Mel Brooks showed up and was basically like, wow, this is shit. Uh, Okay. Well, you know what? Uh, I can't say I'm surprised because part of it is that again, to your point, Lynch was so used to everything that Lynch, or I'm sorry, that Brooks all along the way kept having to go like, David, are you sure you want to do this? Like, you, you probably have your hands full with just the direction. You sure you want to do the sound design? You sure right. you want to do the makeup? You sure you want to do this? We have guys like, for this. Yeah, you have exactly. a whole crew. You have a budget yeah. now. Like, just tell the end me of the who day, you want. <laughs> Lynch was super insistent. So he's just like, fine, fine. But I'm telling you, this could be rough. And so he obviously nailed the sound design, but... Yeah, so when he showed up, it was basically one of these things. He's like, look, kid, no problem. I told you this was going to be a lot. I told you we were taking on too much. It's fine. Let me, you know, let me work my magic. And then went to work. He's like, don't worry about it. You're still on. Get your head in the directing game. You know, we got a movie to shoot, which is just awesome. Like, such yeah. a stand-up dude. Yeah, I mean, he was, uh, what, 34 at the time? Yes, 34 at the time. So, um, okay. you know, he was coming into his own. He was a, he was a grown man. He wasn't just a kid, but... Um, yeah, uh, you know, yeah, I get, I could see where because you know you make you make one film, uh, Eraserhead, that's like super indie and abstract, and then all of a sudden you find yourself on set with all these Hollywood titans, and, sure. and he's in London, like way out of his comfort zone. You know, he, had, I think he said he had only been to London once in his life. Um, he hadn't really left the country a whole lot, and uh, again, being from the Midwest, and then you know living in Los Angeles, so forth. So, uh, yeah, it, it was just you know, I think he was in. Uh, over his head, but uh, he was just primed and ready to rise to the occasion. So, and he did, you know, sometimes life tests your metal a little bit and uh, yeah. puts you through some shit. But um, also a little bit of added trivia uh, because this film added the best makeup category uh, to the Oscars the following year, which would have been the first year that that award existed. Do you know who won that award? It was 1981. Uh, because I have no idea, I'm going to say that Chris Tucker and they nominated him the next year or something like that. No, they did not. Uh, <laughs> it was a Mr. Rick Baker for American oh. Werewolf in London. Hey, yeah. very, One very, very first very much award at the Oscars. Yep. Yeah, that's a good one. Absolutely. One other thing to note, too, is that as far as the amount of British talent that is associated with this film... Part of that is because I guess Brooks worked out a deal with you know, the part of Britain's government that works with media and film, et cetera. And they basically told him, like, if you're able to get – it was a super high number. It was like somewhere between 80 and 90 percent of the cast and crew, if they were British, then they would fund like a huge part of the film. 
And so okay. Brooke, Brooks made that happen. So you've got entirely not just British actors, but also a lot of British men working behind the scenes, not the least of which is our uh, cinematographer yeah, who did such a great job. So Mr. Freddie Francis. Yeah. Yes, so do you know about him at all? I know a little bit, but by, why don't you why don't you tell the people about it? Well, he had not been a cinematographer since 1964. He gave it up to go be a director. Yeah, I did did see that. Yeah, yeah. And he won an Oscar for Best Cinematography way back in 1960 uh, for a film called Sons and Lovers that David Lynch just loved. And it was a black and white picture. He knew he was going to be filming in black and white. So uh, they kept going through all these cinematographers of like, you know, who's who of who was hot in Hollywood at the time. And Lynch kept coming back to uh, Freddie Francis. And so it took a bit of convincing to get uh, Francis back uh, into, you know, to work for them as, uh, you know, because first off, who's this Lynch kid? Uh, Second off, he was still barely coming back as a cinematographer after being a director for, you know, 15 years or whatever it was. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, this was his first major picture back as a cinematographer. Uh, and then he went on to go shoot uh, everything from Martin Scorsese's Cape Fear in 91. Uh, he won a Best Cinematography Award, his second in his career uh, for Glory uh, back in 1990. He even oh, shots wow. uh, Return to Oz with Feruza Balk. So interesting. Um, he went on to have a pretty solid career after he came back for Elephant Man. But yeah, Freddie... Um, you know, kind of, it, it kind of runs congruent with the makeup because Freddie Francis said that um, uh, he and John Hurt were both quoted as saying that everything, that all the success of this film was going to hinge on whether or not the makeup worked. Sure. And when John Hurt had the makeup on for the first time and walked on set, it was just dead silence. You could hear a pin drop. And Freddie Francis uh, said that if he had heard even just one chuckle in the background, if somebody laughed at the makeup on set, uh, as John Hurt was walking on, um, he was going to quit and walk off the picture because he knew it would fail. And nobody sure. did. And that was what uh, kept him <laughs> on board for the first uh, makeup test on screen. So anyways. that's very funny. Also, a bit of a uh, kind of just a funny little sort of note on that is that in case anybody listening might think that this guy was directing very respectable pictures for those 15 years. He was not. He was he directing was hammer horror films, yep. which are like the shittiest B movie exploitation horror films that you can find, <laughs> which I know a lot, which I know there's a lot of people that love that. And that's great. But to your average filmmaker, who's going to think of the guy who shot the elephant man and what he might direct probably didn't think that he would make an exploitation horror films. Right, right. These are things like the creeping flesh or tales that witness madness, <laughs> you know, uh, legend yeah. of the werewolf, the ghoul. So, yeah, very, very B or even D horror films all through the 70s, <laughs> this guy was all about. So that did yeah. give him some horror chops, though, because, again, this movie does have a lot of, you know, old universal monster movie vibes uh, in the way that, yes. you know, it's lit uh, or not lit in many cases, Um you know, just little splashes of light or slow reveals, very Lon Chaney-esque uh, homages uh, throughout this picture. So apparently he was the right guy for the job. I love the cinematography for this movie. Oh, yeah. No, dude, it's amazing. And one of the other funny things, a little sort of funny story about Freddie and the cinematographer is that apparently I forget who it was. It was either like the studio or Mel Brooks or someone was like really pushing 
this other cinematographer on them at the time because yes. they actually did not. It was the so the DP was the last absolute last role that they hired, last major role anyway that they hired for this film. So they actually flew to England with all the locations secured and the shooting schedule and everything without a DP hired, and so they were considering all these people. And as you said, Lynch really wanted Freddie. And again, Studio Brooks, whoever, really pushing this other guy. And so it was something where Lynch and Sanger were sitting down and it was like, Freddie, this other guy, Freddie, this other guy kept going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And they could not make a decision. And so they're like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to flip a coin. So they, <laughs> I did read this story. <laughs> so they flipped a coin and it actually came up the other guy. And then both of them looked each other dead in the eye and went, yeah, no, no chance. Nah, gotta be it's got to be Freddy. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Which I Fuck think is great. Guy. I mean, again, you know, that's a, that's a good, I think we've done that a couple times with sure, stuff, sure. you know, kind of. Right. So trust your gut. And now a quick word from our sponsor. From the studio that brought you such inspirational classics as Chariots of Fire and Ernest Goes to Camp comes a tale that redefines what it means to struggle through adversity. It started just like any other day. Honey, do you have to go to work today? It's our anniversary. Sandra, the safety inspector is at the convention, and I'm the only one qualified to supervise the nuclear plant while he's gone. I promise we'll celebrate this weekend. Until the unthinkable happened. We've got a code red, people, code red! Everybody take cover! Hello? Sandra, get down here quick! There's been an accident! Jack was involved! Where... Where am I? Honey, you're in the hospital. Am I okay? Yes, but... Uh, What is it? Just tell me already! It's your balls! Just look at them! (gasps) My balls! They're... They're enormous! Now, he's going to have to relearn everything he thought he knew. Jack has developed an incredibly rare condition known as elephantitis. His balls are at least 17 times normal size. About himself and his balls. Doctor, I just had my good pants hemmed. Will they still fit? I... I haven't the heart to say... I'm a freak, Sandra, okay? A freak! Now don't go speaking such foolishness, Jack. You just go right out into that world with your head held high and you put one ball in front of the other. Witness the extraordinary tale. You don't know what it's like having men stare awkwardly at you wherever you go. Oh, Jack. I'm a woman. Of course I do. Of a man and his balls. I'm sorry, man, but I can't let your husband into this theater. His balls simply don't fit in our chairs. Now you listen here. My man, Jack, he's gonna get the same opportunities as everyone else. Duo Star Pictures and Pfizer Entertainment are proud to present this triumphant story. It's always balls this and perineum that, but what about the balls in my heart? My heart balls. Elephant Titus Man. Coming this summer to a theater near you. And now back to the show. 
narratively speaking, when we get back to the movie, we're introduced to a security guard. There's long shots of clacking through the halls, and he sort of looks at John and says he's going to make a lot of money with him and kind of sets up a major conflict that's going to happen in the third act and or maybe late second act, you could argue. But either way, from there, the headmaster of the hospital says that he needs to examine John. He needs to determine if this guy could stay long term because, again, they don't house uncurables. And John hasn't spoken a word yet, but Treves is able to have a conversation where he finds out that John can at least speak minimally and understand minimally. So he kind of comes up with a way that he thinks he's going to be able to game the system by practicing with John ahead of time and saying, basically, here's all the questions you can expect, right? This guy tells you this. I want you to say this guy tells you this. I want you to say that. And so shortly thereafter, when the headmaster does indeed have his interview with John, it's working at first, but then some of the cracks start to show. And then after asking the right prodding questions and just continuing and not relenting on it, he very quickly finds out what's going on, right? This guy's smart. He's a doctor himself. And he knows that Treves has a vested interest in him. And also just, you know, is compassionate for him and wants to help him. But at the end of the day, hospital's policy can't keep incurables. This guy's incurable. Get him out. And from there, we get a very powerful scene. I would say this is probably the first, for me anyway, really emotional scene of the film that kind of started to get some of of that response going where as he walks out, you know, Treves is disappointed and, and he's sort of skulking away. And we see and hear John in the bedroom to himself standing up and very passionately delivering Bible verses in a sort of very clear and easy to understand way. And he's not getting the words wrong. He's enunciating very clearly. And Treves is able to run and get the headmaster to say, hey, look, look, look what he's doing. You know, he is smart. He can read or does understand. He can speak. And we find out that he very We very quickly find out that he was able to teach himself how to read and speak the Bible, which he was given when he was living under abuse by the evil headmaster. Sure. Yeah. And this was a touchstone to um, to Treves character arc in the film, Anthony Hopkins character arc, because, uh, you know, he this is news to him, too. You know, he thought that Merrick was dumb, for lack of a better term, or or you know, was yeah. uneducated, couldn't speak, uh, certainly was, uh, there's even a, a quote, uh, just right before this scene where someone asks, you know, if he's dumb or if he's, uh, an idiot of some kind. And yeah. Treve says, I certainly hope so. Cause God help him if he's smart type of thing, you know, I'm yeah. paraphrasing, but, uh, yeah, basically like some self of self-awareness, uh, what a haunting life that would be. Yeah, um, if exactly. he was able to realize the abuses and, and horrors. So, um, yeah, this is the moment where we realize he is cognizant and ed- in, not educated, but uh, but has an awareness and and is able to be educated of sorts. And he does, to your credit, he does have Psalm 23 memorized and starts reciting yeah. it um, from the Bible. So um, he's, you know, basically had access to books and, and is able to read. Uh, and educate himself. So, um, you know, up to this point, you know, this is kind of the, cause I, I think that that's what allowed Dr. Treves to, to put Merrick on display, you know, because he just thought of him as less than, you know, and this was sure. the moment where we start to see that, 
uh, take a turn a little bit in Treve's character arc that now from here on out, he starts to respect Merrick more as a man. And, um, you know, all the way through to the very end of the film uh, when they become friends. Um, But uh, I think it was this moment right here that started to turn that a little bit and uh, work the gears. Uh, Also a very emotional scene because we as the audience didn't know that he was educated. And all of a sudden we get that revealed right along with Dr. Treves. So it's, you know, just as haunting for us where it's like, Oh wow. Fucking guy, you know? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) At least that's how I took it. You know, it was was kind of a gut punch. It was like, Oh shit. So yeah, I think that it starts to set up what I would say is sort of the crux of the theme of this film. And that is watching somebody come to realize and accept their own dignity and self-worth, something that they never had before. And there's a lot of power in that, you know, there's a lot of, look, all of us feel some level of indignity about something we've done. You know, we've all been in professional positions where we've had to be subservient to other people. And so I think that everybody can sort of understand this concept and theme of, you know, this is sort of who I am at my heart, sure. but I have to suppress that for reasons having to do with the external pressures, right? In, in, tre- in not trees, but in Merrick's case, it was the evil headmaster that is, that is keeping him subjugated and, and, and showing him around. And again, I think that we all sort of have elements of that where, you know, we don't feel respected with regards to some part of who we are. And so we've had to suppress that. And I think this film is about all of us, you know, but specifically, obviously, you know, his situation is unique, but all of us sort of coming to understand who we are and grow into who we are and not only be okay with it, but be thankful and right. also really the film explores the way that other people set up that. And I think that's something that's so resonant about this film is that it's <laughs> it's that classic Barbara Streisand, people helping people, the luckiest people <laughs> of all, right? And it's a right. beautiful thing. Yeah, I saw online that this is equal parts uh, a story about John Merrick as the protagonist, but also equally about humanity at large and holding a mirror up to several different kinds of people to see how they respond to a character like John Merrick. And yeah. so you have Treves, you have his wife, uh, you have Anne Pancroft's character, uh, Mrs. Kendall, um, mm-hmm. the head nurse, uh, Bites, and all the people throughout the film. One by one, they come in contact with Merrick. Um, and then the commoners or the carnies that help him out uh, later in the film, each one of them has a different response to someone like Merrick based on their social situation or expectations or, you know, whatever and how they judge him. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely a, an interesting character study. Definitely. And some of the decisions that John Hurt made as an actor, I think, really work. First of all, John Hurt, John Hurt is a very interesting approach to acting, and I'm not sure if he's lazy or he just got tired of fighting directors and producers and people to okay. see through his visions, because to hear him at least later on in his career, when he's doing stuff like this, he very much goes out of his way to be like, look guys, I don't do any research whatsoever outside of the script. He's like, I, to hear him say it, he will say, I assume that you as the writers and the filmmakers have done all of that work And you've decided what you want to keep and what you don't and what you want to focus on and all of this. And so whatever character decisions you've made that you want us to explore and everything, I expect those to be on the page. So 
when I read John Merrick and I finish the script and I've got a strong sense of who this guy is, I'm going to make decisions based on my own instincts responding to what you have put on the page. What I'm not going to do is go listen to interviews with this man or hear what other people have to say about him or even find <laughs> out things like, was he educated or not? Did he come from, did he have a middle-class upbringing high, low? Like what, what was this dude's thing? Nothing at all. He's like, I'm just going to read, read the script. What's there on page. I'm going to bring out as an actor. And that's that. So we get these certain decisions where they may not necessarily be historically accurate or even factual, but I think they work to establish the theme of this film. And one of those decisions, for example, is just the fact that he gives him a middle class bordering on upper, upper class accent. John, uh, John is John gives to John <laughs> uh, her gives to Merrick. <laughs> and a lot of people might say like, okay, well, if you're going to be historically accurate, you know, this guy wasn't smart. Like you, th- he does have the sort of thing where he's kind of like, you know, sucking up the saliva and he kind of wheezes and he, he imparts, those physical characteristics, but then he gives them like a borderline austere sort of accent, you know, that again, probably wasn't historically accurate, but what it is, is it is, is, is it gives him a gentleness that allows us to very easily sympathize with him. Whereas if he was going to go all guttural and visceral with it and go like full Tom Hardy, like probably would have been a great performance, but doesn't allow us to come away with the same thing from this film, right? Um, Doesn't allow him to comment on these things. Doesn't give him that great scene where he's reciting the psalm and all of that, you know? So I do think that even if it's a convenient psychology to have as an actor to say like, well, if it's not on page, I'm not looking it up, right? Cool, it makes your job easier to a degree. <laughs> but at the same time, it allows you to make decisions like this. And so, you know, I'll buy it. I'll, I'll, I'll run with you, John Hurt. I'll let you have this one. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it made uh, Merrick much more of a uh, sympathetic or empathetic character that, uh, you know, he was able to, you know, speak throughout the film and, and uh, found a an eloquent voice. You know, I think it grounded him a little bit versus, because it's my understanding John Merrick could not, talk very well in real life. Yeah, correct. Um, He had impacted wisdom teeth. Bone had grown around the back of his jaw. Um, The tumors on his face, uh, around his lips, uh, created a real, um, you know, bad speech pattern. So um, he did, you know, Hurt took it as far as the dental prosthesis uh, would allow with the lisp and, um, you know, some of the uh, guttural tones, but you're right. He had a more of an eloquent way of speaking throughout. And, and it got to be more so as we get to the end of the film. Yeah, absolutely. There's also another element of the character that we'll, I'll bring about later where it's a little bit more prevalent, um, but that's giving him in later on in the film, as he discovers his dignity, almost giving him a vanity of sorts. It's not like a, a sort of vanity that you would look down upon. It's again, it's a vanity as a result of realizing his dignity as a human being and have people around him show him love and support. And he's like, wow, maybe I'm not actually such a bad guy. Maybe I'm even kind of attractive to people, you know? And then he wears the suit and he's practicing all of his flourishes with the cigars and stuff like that. And I just find that so incredibly charming, you know, because again, for by the time he gets to the end of the film, you know, he's, not acting as a victim anymore. You know, he's realized his dignity. He's realized his strength. And he's done that through this incredible sense of love and support that so many other people have shown to him. And then it gets to a national level, of course, and all of that. But again, a really, really interesting decision 
to allow John Merrick to have some of these qualities. Now, we also get the climax of the film foreshadowed here where a guard brings – the guard, the guard brings the woman to see John. And when she finally sees him, she screams. John screams back. But soon he gets a new room and he gets new maids. And this is where he's even given the suit to wear. And he gets introduced to Treve's wife. And this is another emotional scene. You know, she finds it very, very difficult. But – She shows him this grace and this dignity, and we can see in her acting that she's taken aback, but she still shows him kindness, you know, and this kindness causes John himself to cry, and he apologizes, saying that he's just never been treated so kindly by a beautiful woman, and, you know, later he's talking about his mom, and he's... You know, they're very surprised as we are to find that she was a perfectly healthy, beautiful woman, you know, and he talks about how he sort of feels a level of guilt for not being more of a normal looking person that, you know, she must be disappointed in him as a man and a person because, you know, and this, of course, causes her to cry. And I think if you guys are like me, it causes us to cry as well, you know, because we realize the depth of like how much subjugation this person has undergone, you know? And I think that's one of the wonderful things about- Through no fault of his own, yeah. Correct, yeah, you know? And this is, I think, is one of the wonderful things about us, you know, sort of coming to be accepting of, you know, disabled people. You know, you can sit here and call it woke or whatever the hell you want, but at the end of the day, it's about realizing that these people have sort of been denied humanity for so long and, you know, just- rejected by way of being not even considered, right? Like just these afterthoughts of society. And so when we see these sort of discarded, subjugated, abused people, and they're actually wonderful, stellar examples of the best of what humanity has to offer. and, and, And we see that it's been artificially suppressed by so many of these sort of evil external powerful forces and we see somebody realizing and coming to grow into that dignity and that self-respect and realizing their value. It's just, it's a beautiful thing, you know? Yeah, absolutely. A um, little bit of history that I found on, on John Merrick is that uh, I guess his mother uh, was very sweet to him and he actually, uh, so, you know, his connection with his mother by way of, fo- you know, his photograph that he was treasuring throughout the picture um was real. Like he had a connection with his mother. His mother died when he was 10, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking about real life, John Merrick. Yeah. And uh, of pneumonia, I believe. Okay. So after that, his father remarried to a very mean woman. Um, and they, and then by way of his father loving his new bride, um, sure. they kind of pushed him out of the house. And so at 12, he went to go get his first job and kind of moved out. Uh, and that's when, you know, shortly after that is when he started working um, in the carnival show and as a as an oddity of sorts. I guess that mm-hmm. whole means of entertainment was kind of on the way out in England at that time and had been okay. declining. So there was as much money in it. So then he started going to theaters and uh, take, taking his show on the road, as it were. And he started traveling all around uh, Europe, uh, kind of doing his little one man oddity act. And that was the uh, Bites character was more based on his talent manager at that time who left him apparently stranded in Belgium and, uh, and took all his money and he didn't know what to do. But, uh, so he, he found a way back to London and got a hold of Treves 
who had seen him in when he was performing in London and gave him his card and said, I'd love to, you know, take you in and try to help you out or whatever. And so then the rest of the movie kind of we pick up with that. So the, the beginning part of this film was kind of a conglomeration of the truth um, in so much mm-hmm. as we pick up with uh, with Merrick from that point. But I just wanted to bring up, you know, the fact about his family. He actually did yeah, come from a loving home. It, it, you know, his growth didn't start apparently until he was two years old. Um, he was oh, wow. a perfectly normal child and grew until two. And then um, his bones started to grow deformed and uh, he started to grow tumors and, and his whole condition started to unravel. So uh, wow. because, yeah, so because of his gray skin and his protruding face that uh, when he was a child started to look like an elephant's trunk, um, his mother kind of came up with the story, you know, that she was scared by an elephant and almost uh, trounced while she was pregnant with him. And uh, there was some voodoo shenanigans that, uh, you know, turned him into an elephant man. And they gave him mm. that nickname as a child. So um, that's what stuck. And that's how he performed as uh, the elephant man throughout his career. But anyway. It's really interesting. Now, from there, word of John has spread through England. He, We see that he's been constructing a model of a cathedral the top of which, at least, is visible from his room, and he has to use his imagination to sort of fill in the rest. And after that, he's quickly visited by an actress. And we're not really certain of her motivations at first. Seems like maybe she's just there for some attention or something like that. But regardless, she shows him kindness and she shows him grace. And she's soon revealed to be a legitimate and genuine champion of John's. Right there, she ends up reciting a scene from Romeo and Juliet with him. She's very tender to him. She gives him a little kiss on the cheek. And it also sets up right after that what is one of the most powerful endings that I've seen that we'll get into when we get to the end. And that's the fact that John has to sleep sitting up because if he sleeps lying down, uh, it will kill him because of, I guess, the blood, too much blood rushes to his head or something like that. But regardless, you know, there's a little bit of foreshadowing for the end where we see this. And also we get some of that trademark Lynchian aesthetic, right? Some of that sort of dark unsettling aesthetic where right, yeah. the camera the tracks through the eye hole of the elephant man. And then it booms down to some pipes. We hear a lot of that crackling. And then we once again see his mother thrashing on the ground and the violent elephants trampling. And it sort of r- reveals to us that underneath this, sort of very middle-class austere presentation that he has with his voice and everything that he is still troubled and has a very turbulent subconscious, you know? And we also get a very ugly moment where he's woken up by the guard and, you know, for some reason they're on, they're like are intent on like continuing to show him his reflection and, you know, make him feel intimidated and scared of himself. And so, you know, they wake up and he's showing him, you know, he gets this whole nightmare thing and then he's woken up and sees his own reflection and screams. Now, one of the interesting things, Ryan, because again, I mentioned earlier where it's like this guard is kind of the closest thing that we get to an antagonist along with Mr. Bites, his owner, who has a somewhat complicated, though maybe not as much as the actor would have liked, relationship with him. However, what's really interesting as well as that is that structurally speaking, in addition to not really having a primary antagonist, it also doesn't exactly have a MacGuffin in terms of whether you're talking about Treves or Merrick. You know, neither of them is necessarily 
trying to get a specific outcome from the beginning of the film, right? Like as as the film goes on, we kind of get this revelation of like Treves, you know, is sort of using it to further his own career. But I don't think that's his intent at the beginning of the episode. You could argue sure. it is, but he does yeah. seem like he's a compassionate and genuine man that really cares about him. And again, you know, the closest thing we get to the antagonist is just, you know, these two characters. So did you kind of I'm interested to see if that presented itself to you? Like, did you kind of consider some of these structural elements? Did they present themselves? Did it affect the? Yeah, definitely. Not the MacGuffin, but the fact that you just brought that up blew my lid just now. I hadn't really considered that. (laughs) I, I did think this was an oddly constructed story. That's where. Uh, I started to do research and found out that it was, again, Merrick was half the film and the other half of the film was society and kind of holding a mirror up to society and how they respond to Merrick. Um, but it doesn't have a genuine structure at all. And then now that yeah. you're telling me about this, mentioning the MacGuffin thing too, uh, it's even more so. Like it doesn't, to your point, it doesn't have a protagonist or antagonist really clearly defined throughout the film. It's more of just a character study. Sure. And I mean, even most biopics have you know, your, your main character, John Merrick in this case, would be your protagonist. And then you have an antagonist causing him problems throughout or a series thereof. Um, and this doesn't have that. Um, yeah. It's, uh, again, it's just kind of a character study. and But it, somehow it still maintains its shape and form throughout all three acts to still feel like a Hollywood picture. I don't know how. That's really, yeah. really strange that you could remove such important elements as an antagonist in a MacGuffin and still I just do a character study for two hours and still be engaging. Yeah. Yeah. I was shocked because I mean, we've talked about that all the time, you know, like I, I have, I often have problems with films that are kind of structurally all over the place and kind of yeah. don't know what they want to be. But you know what? Just saying that phrase out there right now, I think that's the huge difference. I think that this film knows what it wants to be every step of the way. I think, Lynch knows exactly the movie he wants to make. I think Freddie knows exactly the film he wants to shoot. Anthony knows what he wants to act. Everybody was very much in control. And I think that's kind they of were. the difference, right? But you'd think that it would be repetitive by the end of the film. You think that, you know, at a certain point we will have seen Merrick do the sympathetic monster with a heart of gold thing for the first hour of the film. Um, mm-hmm. We see people treat him a certain way right up front. And then turn around and, you know, get warm on him or some people don't. You think that we would have gotten it at some point and be like, all right, yeah, I get it. But so one thing that I and and one of my three adjectives is going to lean heavy into this, but but (laughs) where I think this movie where where I think this movie's strength lies more than anything else. We've talked about, you know, the the sound design and the cinematography and the direction of David Lynch and all these things. Uh, But this is a performance based movie. Sure. And. Everybody, those are the ones that are firing on all cylinders because I think the story and the narrative and the structure of this film uh, could all have been very rickety if, you know, been placed in less qualified hands. Um, It's Anthony Hopkins and John Hurt's chemistry that really drives this whole movie and keeps you engaged uh, from the opening scene to the end credits. Um, cause you know, like you said, without that, what are we really trying to achieve? What, what is Merrick trying to get that he yeah. doesn't have by the end of act two? You know what I mean? Like, um, at that point, we're just so married to these characters that we want to see what's next. We want to see John get the 
grooming kit and go to the stage play and all the things that, uh, you know, he's rewarded for after a lifetime of suffering. Um, those moments are so rewarding. And I think that's because of the performances leading up to them. Uh, you know, that, that when those moments happen, um, it's never really, uh, an achievement of a MacGuffin other than, so maybe dignity is the MacGuffin, I guess. I don't know if you really want to make a stretch and call it that, but, um, cause those are yeah. the things that he's striving for and achieves by the end of the film. So I guess maybe you could call human dignity or, or respect, uh, the MacGuffin, but certainly nothing tangible. Um, and I do believe that he gets a lot of that, you know, by the end of act two. Uh, the respect and all of that. And then we see him removed. We're going to get to that here shortly. And then he has to find his way back. But uh, uh, anyways, I digress. And I do think that the screenwriters understood this. And I think they sort of tried to like cheat the system a little bit. And I think they actually managed to do so effectively by giving you like little half antagonists along the way. Because in addition to the guard and the Mr. Bites, there's also that scene probably about two thirds of the way, slightly towards the end where they're having like the coalition of doctors. And there's that one doctor who's like super determined to kick John out of the hospital. And again, you know, for those five minutes, like he's definitely the antagonist of that scene. And we want, you know, our protagonist Treves or whoever to succeed over him and let John stay. So it's almost like they knew that. And we're like, let's give him like little sort of, pro tag and tag scenes along the way just to kind of keep that going because we know we don't really have one. I think, I mean, based on what we're talking about, it was probably enough to get us past that. That's probably part of what makes it work for us that we can't necessarily put our finger on. No, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a uh, bit of a Pinocchio story is what I kind of have that attributed to in my notes here, because I, I saw that same thing too. Like Pinocchio, goes on an adventure, but then runs into a bunch of little mini antagonists along his adventure, right? Yeah. Whether it's, uh, you know, the carnival people that take him to Pleasure Island and talk him into doing that, uh, mm-hmm. the marionette guy that, like, captures him and imprisons him, and then you have the whale, Monstro, that, like, swallows him and Geppetto. So, yeah, it, it just kind of uh, struck me as a bit of a a uh, an adventure story of sorts, even though he's in the hospital all the time. But uh, yeah, it was it was more akin to that's what I have in my notes anyway. That's what I, it reminded me of. No, that's, running that's into totally these fair. little and mini antagonists, little, little, little <laughs> mini adventures. I also think it's a fair comparison stylistically, just because of the fact that, like, I don't know about you, but there are like sequences in Pinocchio that terrified me as a child. Oh sure, the whole you know island of lost children or whatever the hell it is that he finds himself on. So in the same way, you know that. I mean, granted, I didn't see Elephant Man at seven. I'm sure some of these things would have scared me. But as a you know grown man, it's like these are pretty unsettling sequences that juxtapose some also just very purely emotional and you know good feeling, for lack of a better word, sort of scenes. Absolutely. Now we also have Treves confronted by the nurse. She's kind of like the head nurse, and you know she confronts him about the fact that he's been allowing John visitors. And this is sort of where, you know, they further sort of establish that Treves arc of where he's kind of in his own way, kind of doing the same things that the headmaster was doing for very different reasons, obviously, but you know, he's using him for his own success. You know, he's trotting him out in front of people to be able to bask in the glory that's associated with it. And the nurse kind of realizes like, look, you know, these people, you might have respect for John, 
But these people don't, you know, they're here to look at him like a train wreck or a car accident and just want to go tell their wealthy friends that they, you know, saw some horribly disfigured person and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, they don't respect him as a human being, certainly the way that Treves does. And just the fact that either immediately or very shortly thereafter, we sort of see Treves considering this. He's initially very dismissive towards her kind of combative. But then he lets it sink in and he starts to wonder if that's the case. And just the fact that he sits there and wonders if that's the case tells us that he is, in fact, an honorable person, right? Because a dishonorable sure. person would never stop to consider that. They certainly wouldn't care. They would just go on about their business. And again, you know, after this is where we get the scene with the congregation of medical professionals. They're about to vote John out of the hospital when the princess of England shows up. And she's got a letter from the queen herself and they indicate their admiration, talk about how well this reflects on the country of England and showing the compassion that humanity can have for other people. And so when they take their vote, obviously all of the doctors, including our little mini antagonist doctor, are far too intimidated to vote against the princess. And so they all vote to let him. It was a great scene. There. You love to see it. Yeah. <laughs> Cause he had just finished stating his case. Saying, this will not stand. This is against all the policies of this hospital <laughs> and he's not curable. And therefore he must go post haste. And then he walks the, <laughs> fucking voice, the princess of motherfucking England. And she's like, Oh, by the way, jerk nuts, I got this letter from the queen. And then uh, she's, and then the dog, the headmaster is like, Oh, let's read this. And it's like, John Merrick, I just want to say he's the shit and uh, much love, big ups to John and you guys are doing great work. We've been keeping an eye on things and we'd love to help you fund his room and this and that. And so then the headmaster's like, okay, (laughs) doctor, uh, anybody want to, you know, protest what the queen herself has said, Dr. Jerknuts, uh, you have anything to say? And he's like, and then that was the end of that. Shut his ass down. Very, very justifying scene. And I'm glad that uh, you let me take that moment to uh, perform it for the listeners. Oh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Again, wonderful voice, man. Loving that accent. We're going to work that into a script here if we haven't already. So, uh, or a sketch. Absolutely. Say, so. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> now, this kind of, uh, the next scene kind of sets up what might be considered the film's climax. Again, kind of the closest thing we get to an antagonist where it's the guard and he goes into this bar and he basically starts collecting fees to go show people the horribly disfigured elephant man and... He takes a large grouping of people. One of them is the old owner, the Mr. Bites. And, you know, they basically, everyone's all hammered and drunk and they break into John's quarters. But, you know, instead of even just leering at him, which would be degrading enough, they go so far as to parade him around and shove liquor down his throat and sort of, you know, laugh at him and parade around his deformities and just overall generally degrade him and once again refuse his humanity, you know. Uh, this was yeah, sort it was of bad where. Yeah, yeah, it's really uncomfortable. It's really sad to see. They were see. like forcing women to kiss him and like grind all up on him and stuff. It was bad. Yeah, it was very uncomfortable. Uh, and just sort of a reminder, you know, that uh, there is unfortunately this, you know, lesser humanity that exists out there that engages in these sorts of things. And so everybody leaves by the end of the day, except for John's old owner, the Mr. Bites. And the next morning, John's nowhere to be found. And, you know, the, the funny thing, too, is that, in, you know, kind of what's your point, you know, these little sort of gratifying moments of the antagonist to getting there or whatnot, where you get like the old school, you know, screwball comedy of, uh, 
you know, the guards confronted by Treves the next day. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about, blah, blah, blah. And then he's like talking some shit. And then the head nurse comes out and like bashes him on the back of the head, you know, with the whatever it was. And it's almost like yep. a, it's almost like a comedy beat, you know, in, a little in, bit. in just that little moment. But um, once again, kind of, you know, just throwing some chum to the audience and giving the given the lesser uh, characters their comeuppance or at least a moment of it. Now, from there, we learned that John is in bad shape. He's back to being paraded around by the freak show owner again. But he is a broken man at this point. His dignity is robbed. And, you know, I think his illness is also getting to him and he's unable to perform. Well, the headmaster believes John is just kind of like doing some sort of nonviolent resistance, so to speak, and becomes livid at him, you know, continues to beat him, tells him he's not doing his thing, and even goes so far as to very cruelly throw him in a baboon cage. With, like, live baboons that are incredibly violent. They scared me watching the film safely from home. Like, I'm shocked John Hurt went in that damn cage, dude. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> couldn't pay me enough, right? But uh, Or at least worth a little bonus to do that. So, you know, they're Yeah, shrieking. and it's not like they could get a stunt actor to do it because no stunt actor <laughs> right? is going to sit in the makeup chair for seven hours <laughs> to get the makeup put on for, like, a 20-second scene. So <laughs> Absolutely. He's got to suck know. it up and get in there. He did it. He came through. And we're introduced to these sort of other circus freaks. We don't really see them really outside of this scene, but, you know, it's a band of them from, you know, the bearded lady to, you know, the the little people and just sort of all the different people that are a part of this freak show that the evil ringmaster, Mr. Bites, has going on. And yes. they're very dismayed by how he's being treated, you know, and they, they look on him with compassion and they decide that they can't let this stand, basically, and they're going to break him out, you know, and they even go so far as to not only do that, but, you know, show him compassion as they cover his head and they're escorting him to the nearby ferry. You know, once again, that classic, you know, people helping people. Right. And not just that, but one of the things that we sort of very quickly understand as we start to look into David Lynch is just how much he does have an appreciation for what you might call non-mainstream personalities, right? You might even call it a reverence for some of these people. You know, he really appreciates the freaks, the loners, the oddballs, the people that don't exist in easy buckets, people with right. very unique artistic sensibilities, people that dance to the beat of their own drum, right? And it's so funny because, again, if you just met this dude on the street with how naturally gregarious and charming and sort of traditionally Midwestern – his approach and his personality is like, I, you know, I would think that you would never in a million years think this is a guy who's doing like surreal, you know, transcendental meditation inspired film noir and, you know, all the sort of worlds that he plays in. Sure. And, uh, and I just, I, no, you know, no, I yeah, really appreciate I, that. Every time I hear him talk, I said it at the head of the show, it completely takes me off guard. It's just how, charming and normal he is because it's just not who you expect him to be but uh yeah i mean that's true with a lot of filmmakers i guess or just creative sure. types just because they make weird shit does it yeah yeah um except for tim burton that guy's weird as fuck uh, <laughs> but as we go through uh the the carnies of sorts did you recognize who the little person was i did not know who is it it's a Mr. Kenny Baker uh, who played the person who let him out of the cage and said, go about your way and gave him his uh, pittance to catch the uh, train or boat or whatever he got on. Yeah. Kenny Baker, for those that don't know. I, I don't know Kenny Baker, so please tell he's us. He's played many little people roles throughout the days, but he's most notable as playing R2-D2. Oh, no way. 
Well, there you go. All the Star Wars films. Awesome. Yeah. Love that. Very cool. (laughs) He was the man inside the can. Gotcha. (laughs) And one of the things that I think is also cool is the way that Lynch kind of reinforces this notion of, you know, so often the people that have the most to offer are the people that get cast away or not considered by society. And sure. he juxtaposes that, you know, the, these carnival the carnies show him incredible kindness, help him help smuggle him away and everything. And then the moment that he gets off the boat, you know, he's got his mask on and he's got a crutch that he's walking with and he's just watching through. And all of a sudden, you know, some regular person, quote unquote, right? Like starts kind of harassing him. Hey, buddy, what's with the mask? What you doing? You know, then two other, you know, quote unquote, normal, regular people come out. And then before you know it, this poor dude's just basically being like harassed and chased throughout this uh, ship's yard or this train station. I think it's after he gets off the train at the train station. And again, I think the juxtaposition between seeing that these carny people do nothing but show him kindness and all of the regular mainstream people are you know, making fun of them and scared. And they're the ones that are also getting drunk and going to, you know, shoving liquor down his, his throat and all of that. So it is really interesting that he's able to juxtapose that immediately by having the carnies sneak him out and then the regular people harass him. And this is actually the part where he gets, you know, he turns around. He's, he basically is chased into the bathroom. He turns around to the mob. And he exclaims probably like, you know, the most infamous line in the whole movie, which, you know, we'll play here real quick for anybody that hasn't heard it. And it's just such a powerful scene because he's finally found the courage and the dignity and self-actualization through being propped up again through so many people around him to confront the mob, to declare his humanity and his dignity and say, no, you know what? Like I don't deserve this. I am a a man. I am a human being. I don't deserve to be treated like an animal, like an elephant and – Again, it's it's the moment that he realizes that and really inhabits right, it and stands right. up to everybody. Yeah, I was just going to add to that, and, and you just nailed it on the head, that uh, it's the first time in the film that I think you see him stand up for himself. Because yeah. in the beginning, he's living in squalor, and, and he's being abused, uh, and he doesn't know any better or whatever. He just thinks that's what life is for him. Um or all has life to life has to offer. And then other people slowly, but surely start standing up for him. Uh, Dr. Treves and the headmaster and stuff like that, the head nurse. Uh, and then, but this is the first thing that you see him kind of take, uh, you know, impart some of that dignity on his own behalf. And so, uh, it was definitely a powerful scene. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really funny too, because obviously that is the line that a lot of people remember, And I kind of remember like, you know, growing up, like my dad would kind of like mockingly do that. So I'm not an animal. And like various people would do that, you know? And so then like you watch the movie and like, this was another moment where I teared up because it's just like the, 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 the extreme emotion behind it. And the way that John Hurst plays that is he's sort of, he's sort of 
desperately creaking these words out as he's backed up against the wall and like sliding down to the floor, like begging people to just treat him with dignity and humanity. Sure. And, you know, again, it's a it's it's a very emotional moment. Yeah. I mean, and because we've seen that scene, uh, because we're familiar with that scene uh, from cinema history, I was curious if it would hold the the emotional gravitas that it was meant to. Yeah. Uh, or if we're just so used to hearing it that it would just be kind of cliche, you know, and just like, oh, I get it, you know, I'm not in. But dude, again, performance heavy. Uh, it's, yep. you know, and sound heavy because it's a, if, if I recall, it's a fairly quiet scene. Yeah. There's not a lot of triumphant music and, you know, this big thing. It's just, you know, all the people, you know, kind of shush down as he, stands up to them as they were not expecting to. We get the reverse shot of their faces and all of that. So a very, very powerful scene that Lynch let you just kind of sit in for a while. Uh, while you heard hurt, uh, um, while you heard John hurt, you know, kind of whimper and cry about it, you know? Yeah. And actually the, 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 the sound design on that scene in particular harkens back to what you said at the top of the show, because it actually, it's about using when do you send and when not, because it actually ramps up. Right. So like when he first gets off, we're hearing like the click of his crutch. We hear some of the steps of the people. They start sort of calling out to him. The music starts to get a little bit suspenseful. It starts to climb and get and rise and get a little bit louder as more and more people come out and chase him. And then by the time he's cornered, we get this nice crescendo and then he yells out, no, or stop or whatever. And then everybody stops and all of the background music goes out and all of the additional sound goes out. And all you hear is his words and perhaps some of the clinking of him against the wall. And it makes it incredibly, incredibly powerful, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Good, good stuff. Um, Before we get too much further, because we're getting towards the end of the film here, um, something that I do have in my notes that I wanted to just very briefly mention. Yeah. um, Did you notice anything about the editing to this film? I can't say that I did. Uh, Although some people would say that that's what makes it great editing, right? The best editing is invisible. (laughs) So, but no, I can't say that I noticed. Uh, something that I did notice was all the fade ins and fade outs. Um, okay. Very little. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Jump cuts. Um, just all fade ins, uh, you know, fade to black and then fade up from black and fade to black and fade up from black. It was very, very old timey in its editing. So interesting. Uh, it made me. Yeah. So it made me wonder, like, who the hell edited this film? And it's a Miss Ann V. Coates, who I don't know if you recognize that name. Uh, no. But she is, uh, I believe, an Oscar winning editor who most okay. notably editor edited uh, Lawrence of Arabia for David Lee. Oh, wow. Um, Crazy. Yeah. So just, you know, adding to the pile that everybody was somebody on this roster. It's a pretty <laughs> incredible cast of folks. Yeah, that's that's nuts, man. That's pretty awesome. No, I didn't realize that. But that's very cool. Is Annie Coates a character in a movie? Why do I know that name? I feel like she is. I feel like that is. Anybody listening, feel free to call our hotline. Not just kidding. But, uh, <laughs> but no, seriously, if you do know, call our hotline. We'd love to hear that from you. So uh, from there in the film, John returns to the hospital and he has a final conversation with Frederick Treves about how he is and always will be uncurable. And he gives a very brief but emotional soliloquy about how he's happy every moment of every day. Because he knows that he's loved and he hasn't been able to always say that. Again, very, very nice, wonderful scene. That's actually not in the script. I was actually reading through some of the script and it's not in there. So there's certain things. Oh, interesting. 
uh, added um, or and subtracted along the way. There's also a sort of voiceover that they took out later on in the scene. But as emotional as this moment it is, uh, I have to say it pales in comparison to like the final scene where, you know, again, I think this is just like the most perfect way to end this film. Like I like I cannot think of a more resonant and more perfect way to end this film wherein John finishes his cathedral. You know, he signs it John Merrick. The camera sort of very lovingly shows all of this detail, this wonderful work that this man has done in addition to this entire journey of self-realization and, and dignity that we've learned along with him. And, you know, John knows that he's going to die. And I think that he decides that he's going to go out on his own terms in his own way. And shortly after that, we see him sort of turn to the bed and he just starts making the bed. And like in very immediately on the heels of everything that we know about the fact that if he lies down, he, he's going to, to die. We, we realize that he, he's literally making his own bed to pass away in. And it's the encapsulation of the fact that he's been shown this tremendous kindness He's realized his dignity. He feels loved. He knows he's loved. He's respected by people. He, he pretty much knows this is as good as it gets for John Merrick. And he wants to go out on that note, right? With love in his heart, feeling complete. And Lynch just kind of gives us like, gives him two minutes to just sort of sit there and make his bed as we are realizing what's going on and considering everything with his journey and being allowed to sit in it. And, you know, again, it, the, the film, it's an emotional ending, but it's ultimately an uplifting ending while also being a very sad ending. And so the fact that it can sure. so many yeah, emotional it's beats at the same time. Um, yep. But the fact that, you know, he is able to go out on his terms with love and warmth in his heart and knowing that he is 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 con is has dignity is respected by people it just goes back to show that like so much of you know us as humans and the human experience and putting it's it's of course been told a thousand times but just the nature of materialism and what we get caught up in versus you know what's really special and what's really important it, the, you know that ending really makes you remember those concepts it makes you consider those concepts. It, it made me appreciate what I have in life, you know, and made me remember how much, so much of this experience on this earth is dictated by relationships. And sure. You know, when you, when you pass on your deathbed, um, you know, it's, it's, you regret the things you didn't do and you regret that, you're going to miss some people that you love very much, you know, and it's just a sort of very beautiful and tender emotion to go out on. I agree. Yeah. And uh, it's my understanding, too, that it was uh, authentic to the way John Merrick actually passed or Joseph wow. Merrick, as it were. That's so amazing. he. Yeah. Yeah. They said that, um, you know, it was a combination of uh, uh, it could have been either. Uh, his breathing was inhibited based on uh, being able, you know, having to lay down. His head was so heavy that it could have uh, dislodged his neck. 
uh, and he could have literally broke his mm-hmm. neck when he mm-hmm. laid flat. But uh, his whole life, he couldn't sleep with dignity like a normal person. And he even mentions it earlier in the film. They kind of tee it up with a little mm-hmm. bit of foreshadowing uh, about wanting to sleep like a normal uh, person. But uh, he did. He went out uh, on his own terms. And, um, and I think right before this scene, too, uh, there's a combination or, or a conversation between Dr. Treves and his wife. And she asks if he knows, uh, John Merrick knows that he's going to die soon. Yeah. And Treves, uh, I, I forget his response if he says that he does or he doesn't. But all that to say that it, it's um, kind of a bit of a, a tee up that Merrick may not be with us very much longer anyway. So he yeah. kind of decided to go out on his own terms with dignity, with love in his heart, on, um, you know, after wrapping up one of the best nights of his life where he was the guest of honor uh, at this stage performance. Uh, he always wanted to go see a play. Um, and, right, yeah. Uh, the stage play, by the way, was uh, had a lot of Lynchian elements as well. Very <laughs> elephant man, psychedelic, you know, weird stuff going on. Um, he got to go play for for a minute or so of uh, on screen time. But yeah, it was quite the ending. It had a bit of an emotional beat. And then, uh, you know, then uh, we we end the film with a bunch of Lynchian shit too, because there's Correct. like stars yes. and then his mom comes up and gives this uh, bit of dialogue, right? And uh, so, you know, it's, it's kind of like a little bit of, what I took it as, you know, a little bit of metaphor saying that he gets to go be with his mom again, which was really sweet. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we've got the sort of bookend of the film with these sort of, like you say, Lynchian, almost surreal scenes in a film that otherwise wouldn't really call for it. And yeah, it's a voiceover of his mother mentioning how no one ever really truly dies, right? Everything just sort of persists and meet back up and go move on to the next stage. And so as it ends, you know, it, 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 if I recall, the credits are over pretty quickly. I think that gets most of them out at the top. And so yep. it pretty much just kind of like leaves you hanging on this very sort of strong emotional beat with all and, and everything just goes quiet and you're left to sort of sit in that and feel and reflect. And I really appreciated those minutes at the end of the film. Um, so, yeah, they didn't yeah. kick on any, uh, you know, Huey Lewis as the credits rolled. There, there was no, <laughs> there was no triumphant celebration. It's kick him uh, when you, you know. kick him when you're down. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, that'd be so, great. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> and that's the Elephant Man. So wonderful film. I just absolutely adored it. Before we get into our three adjectives and final rating, do just want to remind you, listeners. If you enjoy the show, the best thing you can do to help us out besides listening as you do, and we appreciate you so much for it, is to go ahead and rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you do. Also, we really appreciate word of mouth. Feel free to share this with your friends, either in person, social media. We really appreciate everything that you guys do and for you continuing to listen to us. Now, we're going to go ahead and get into our three adjectives and formal star rating. Ryan, I will let you take three adjectives. What you got? Uh, well, I've talked about this ad nauseum throughout, but well-performed is my first. Um, I think this entire film hinges on, uh, the, the performances, uh, as it's not a traditional narrative structure as we talk about. Um, the next one is moody, um, because, uh, the cinematography, the music, they did such a great job of, uh, just bringing you right down to street level of Victorian era London and, uh, in the muck and the mire or all the things right down to the, uh, you know, the gas, flame lamps and stuff that they show around the hospital. Just every detail was taken care of um, to create that. And then, you know, of course the mood, uh, the mood lighting and all the things. Uh, so moody. And then my last one is moving um, mm-hmm. 
because of all of the things, all the heart that we talked about. <laughs> the, you know, I, I talked about this as well throughout the podcast, but, um, you know, I was uh, a film like this that, you know, we kind of know uh, the emotional moments as being a cliche. I'm not an animal, this and that. Um, I wasn't sure if it would hold up uh, over time and be, uh, you know, so moving uh, as it is intended to be. And I was delighted to find out that it was all of that. Um, any emotional beat I felt. Um, and a lot of that had to do with, you know, the the sound design, you know, dropping out like you talked about and, and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, this is a very moving picture. No pun intended. a moving picture of a moving picture i for my three adjectives the first one is no surprise here emotional i thought it was just an incredibly emotional experience throughout as we've talked about sincere you know the sincerity of the film you know it wears its heart on its sleeve you know this isn't a film where it's like david lynch isn't too cool for school you know he doesn't think that like Oh, showing emotions, lame, dude, whatever. That's for pussies, Psh, whatever. Like, nah, dude, he's like, this is humanity right here. This is the human experience and calling attention to what he knows is his truth about the world and also just seeing everybody else bring a sincerity to their role. You know, it's lovingly photographed. It's lovingly acted. You know, you can just tell that everybody was very invested in making a quality picture and doing reverence and justice to the idea of John Merrick and what he had to go through and not sensationalizing it in the wrong way. Sure. And then beyond that is the term that's come up the entire time, dignified. You know, I don't know that necessarily the film itself is dignified, but just dignity is a recurring theme of this film. And it's one of the best examples I can think of, of a film that really investigates that, like nothing else that I can think of in my mind that, has to do with something. There's a couple films, sure, but a lot of them, again, like when it's done as a Hollywood biopic, and this is a Hollywood film, right? You mentioned it earlier a couple times. You know, this was not an independent film. This is a mainstream Hollywood film with mainstream Hollywood sure. actors by Mel Brooks, all this sort of stuff, you know? And so for that to maintain this sincerity of dignity, again, it was a, it, it was a brilliant experience. We're all the better for having this film. Emotional, sincere, dignified just because it's not going to come as any surprise to anybody out there. I'm going to go ahead and hit the star rating first and let you know that as expected, I am giving this a full five out of five stars. There is top notch. Yeah, no, I figured. So that's why I was going to pass it to you after, but I just, there's every, there isn't a single piece of this film, a single aspect of this film that I would change. And I would, I, I can actually with, this is not like a Gene Shalit quote. I find this to be one of the absolute best films ever made. It would be personally in my top 50 easily, probably rank much higher. It's the only film to me, not the only film, but it's one of the only films I can think of that has such a genuine emotion behind it. And that does not feel manufactured or Hollywoodized at all, despite being a Hollywood film and also being able to present the best of what that has to offer. So what you got for your grade rating? I'm giving it an A plus as well. Oh, for all the reasons wow. you just said. Oh, I thought yeah. I, I misunderstood. I thought you said you weren't going to give it that. No, five out of I five. didn't say that. Oh, I no, totally this misunderstood. Is, you're getting a full A plus from old Ragai. Oh man, that just, uh, that warms my heart. Just like John Merrick at the end of the film, man. Uh, I, I'm really glad to hear that it resonated with you so strongly as well. Um, look, you know, looking at, looking at, so, uh, you know, I have like 
20 friends or something on Letterboxd. It is not many at all. It's some other people from the podcasting community. And I was really surprised to see that like many of them had seen this and all of them gave this film four stars out of five. And okay. I just, you know, like I would, it, I mean, I, of course film is, is subjective and everything, but uh, there was something about this film that just hit as hard as it possibly could. And it sounds like it did for this you film as well. So ticked off all the boxes. I could yeah. not much like you already said, uh, I don't have to justify my answer because you already said what I would say. But yeah, I could find no fault in this film from the cinematography, the score, the acting, the directing. Everything we talked about is just absolutely perfect. It's engaging. The story has heart. Um, I felt the emotional beats. Uh, every little thing. It, it just was perfect. It was a perfect movie. I would recommend it to anyone. That's the other thing. Is Absolutely. That, um, not, you know, much different than any other David Lynch movie, I, who, what I, which I could not recommend to anyone. Uh, <laughs> this one is this only film in his catalog that I could recommend to everybody. Everybody, if you have not seen this movie, go see this movie immediately. Uh, it is absolutely perfect on every level. Uh, I could not deduct it even a plus. It gets an A plus. And it was nominated for eight Oscars. Yeah. Um, we didn't really talk about its award consideration. It did lose Best Picture to Ordinary People, which I have not seen. Another cinematic confession. I, I've, but, you, uh, technically, I saw that film in high school for my mass media class, but I don't remember okay. anything about it whatsoever. So like for all intents and purposes, I haven't even I haven't seen it either, even though technically I have one of those films. Fucking movie Clean House. Redford yeah, no, won Best Director for Ordinary People, won Best Picture. Uh, Timothy Hutton won Best Supporting Actor, and on and on it goes. Um, so, unfortunately, old Elephant Man was left out in the cold, as he does. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> Certainly through no fault of his, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was up against the uh, same year. Coal Miner's Daughter, Raging Bull, and Tess were oh, the other Best tough Picture year. nominees. Yeah, that's rough, so... But still, I it's mean, weird, dude, out of all those films, Ordinary People wins, you know, you'd think, I mean, I could picture any one of those other movies winning Raging Bull or Coal Miner's Daughter or any of that. But Ordinary People, I got to see that one, I guess. There, there must have been like a turning point in the way that film looked at like life or specifically like suburban life or something, because that was also on the heels, possibly, I believe, of Kramer versus Kramer winning 79 to 78, something like that. Okay. So maybe this was right about the time that films were really starting to get into like the you know typical suburban experience and not just hey everything's lucy and ricky but like yeah dude these people fucking hate each other and we're gonna look at that you know fucking jimmy carter (laughs) (laughs) but yes that's the uh elephant man as ryan said uh film is pg so there's no reason this is a film you can watch with your kids i don't really think a kid would appreciate it like that but there's certainly nothing objectionable in it but uh you can certainly watch it with your grandparents i think that would probably you know your parents or grandparents are gonna appreciate this film you can watch it with your wife husband whoever and uh so yeah definitely definitely check out the elephant man get in touch with some of that emotional side especially if it's been a minute maybe call your mom after when you're done (laughs) now as far as the show is concerned as said we do appreciate you listening and we would love to hear from you you know where uh ryan neither ryan nor i are big scary guys you can feel free to reach out to us to a couple different ways we've got the socials we're on twitter and instagram at esoterica cinema don't know how much longer we'll be on twitter or if it's still up even right now who's to say but uh if that's not working for you, you can also hit us up on the email, esotericacinema at gmail.com. We love to hear about anything you have to say about the movies we have watched, other movies you might have seen, our show that you listen to, either myself or Ryan, and of course, muffins and all muffin-related inquiries. Tell us about that delicious blueberry muffin you're talking about. That's right. Three seasons in, I'm still keeping muffins going. Also, 
we've got the yeah, hotline. It's been a while since you've had the muffin call to action. That's good. I'm yeah, glad you're bringing you know, that back. Dallying with crepes and some other things here and there. And then I was like, dude, you know, you, you, you got away from, from who you were. You know, it was yes. always about the muffins. You got to go back. back to the muffins. Yeah. And uh, but uh, we also have the Esoterica Cinema Hotline where you can leave us a message. We sure would love it if some of you some of you folks called. No one really seems to call and leave us messages. And so it's uh, awfully lonely over here at the old uh, hotline. Some cobwebs gathering dust and whatnot. But uh, you can call and change all of that right now by letting us know what you thought about The Elephant Man or any other film we've looked at. 818-483-6285. Call the Esoterica Cinema Hotline and let us know what you think. Now, we're also going to encourage you to go check out our website. EsotericaCinema.com is cracking these days. Got a bunch of cool links up there. We've got all the web players that you can listen to everything. Maybe you're doing so right now. And that's also where you can find our infamous master list. That's right. The master the list. Master list. Just like Master Chief and Master whoever. I don't know. It's the only master thing Bates. I can think of. There you go. Master Bates. Good old friend. <laughs> uh, yeah, we have the master list with all 200 films that we choose from at the end of every episode, including... Right now. So we do like to give uh, anybody who plays at home the opportunity to go ahead and jump online, esotericacinema.com. Go ahead and pull up that PDF that's right there at the page because we are going to spin some wheels and pick our next film. What do you think, Ryan? Should we do it here? Hell yeah. Let's see how my week's going to go. Absolutely. So as you all know, we like to go to our uh, random.org true number generator and as we go there, we select the number, 1 through 200, spin, spin, spin. And I don't even have mine up, so I don't know what this is yet. 98. Number 98 is the number. And as we go to 98, oh, my God, I have not seen this movie in forever. And this is so a movie that we should do on this film, on, on this show. Absolutely. 100 lot to talk about here. Dude, any of these three movies would have been, dude, O is banger. Oh, oh, and yeah, it has bangers. Look at that. So yeah. let's talk about what we didn't get. We didn't get, which again would be a brilliant film to do here. Number 97, No Country for Old Men, which for as filmmakers as accomplished as the Coens, I think that's my favorite, even though admittedly I've probably only seen a quarter of the films that they've made just because they've made so many. But that film is right up there with There Will Be Blood in, in just like being an absolute masterpiece of cinema. Hopefully we get a chance to talk about it sometime. Now, below 98 at 99, Once Upon a Time in America. I remember this being a, a later stage edition. You and I were talking about this because it's like four hours long, if I recall. Is that correct? Yes. And uh, it's, for the director's cut or whatever it is, yeah. Which everybody says is like, you have to watch that if that's you're going to watch it. That's the one you have to it. see. And right. that's Sergio Leone's final film, right? Was that who it was? I believe so. Yeah, yeah, I believe so. So, uh, But no, for 98... We are doing one of the best revenge thrillers of all time. One of the most unfortunate protagonists ever in cinematic history who in no way deserves <laughs> anything that ultimately happens to him for this most minor of transgressions <laughs> that just goes in the most horrific, horrific directions possible. We're doing old boy. Hell yeah, dude. We're doing old boy. Yep. The original from 2003. And by all means, I believe you have a description for us, don't you? I do. From director Park Chan-wook. This is a story about Daesu as an obnoxious drunk bailed from the police station yet again by a friend. However, he's abducted from the street and wakes up in a cell where he remains for the next 15 years. 
drugged unconscious when human contact is unavoidable, otherwise with only a televisionist company, and then suddenly released, he is invited to track down his jailer with a denouement that is simply stunning. Released in 2005? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty excited about this one. It's gonna be a little unsettling. I have seen this movie before, but uh, yeah. This is there, there's going to be a lot of meat on the bone to dissect on this film. <laughs> awesome. Uh, this is also where I get to be all bougie and remind you that it's pronounced Denamois. The fuck? Really? Denamois. Denamois is the uh, we learned this in film school, dude. They totally thought I totally remembered this uh, because, yeah, we were that. all calling it Denouements. And then I think it was like Bennett, our old screenwriting teacher, was like, it's actually Denamois. Uh, it's it, all it is, is a uh, is the third act climax. It's just a fancy French word for third act climax. Got it. Yeah. So, but yeah, super, super looking forward to old boy. I haven't seen this film in at least a decade, dude. How about you? Yeah. Same. Probably longer. I've not seen this movie probably for longer. Yeah. Could even be close to two decades. Because (laughs) when when it came out. It's so twisted. Yeah. It's pretty fucked. And uh, it leaves you kind of sitting in your own soup for a bit. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely not going to leave you with the warm and fuzzies. So uh, be prepared. I mean, it's not like. I wouldn't say it's ultimately like, it's not necessarily like, you're not going to cry because it's ultimately sort of like an action thriller. Like it's it's not not playing those emotional beats, but you will just like, by the end of it again, it's like, this man did not deserve all this. I really feel bad for him. I I hope things work out better in the sequel. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny (laughs) that we, uh, we chose this because I'm hoping to see decision to leave his latest film um, that I've, I've been trying to get to for one of the mini episodes. So, Dude. Maybe there'll be a Park Jen Wook back to backer here for you guys. I'll I'll take it one better. Uh, the good thing about this film is that next season I get to put the next one on because I never saw either of the following two. I know this is part of a, a trilogy of his, and uh, I did not see two or three. Ah, got it. Yeah, I yeah. didn't know about that. Is this a part of the Vengeance trilogy? Yeah, exactly. So I think it's sympathy for Lady Vengeance is Mister Vengeance. Yeah, so Mister Vengeance Lady, and, two and, and Lady the, Vengeance. Uh, is three. The sequel is Lady Vengeance. Got it. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I have never seen either of those, and I'm I have not either. Totally gonna change that after we rewatch this. I'm definitely at least gonna watch the second one. Maybe maybe do it as a five mini. We'll see. One of our hell yeah. five minute reviews. I support that. To do so much. But either nice. way, really looking forward to Old Boy. Again, if you haven't seen it, it hits pretty hard, but it is also such a wonderful, great film. Uh, I'm sure it you can is. tell by the, the enthusiasm in our voices here that it's a rough watch, but definitely worth all of your time. So check out Old Boy in advance of our next episode, and we will see you next time on Esoterica Cinema. Enjoy the movies. <laughs>